welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Back. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Nervous. Well, uh, yeah. Well, for a number of reasons. The okay. first, and first and foremost, yeah, we are using updated software, and I am not uh, 100% confident in it. <laughs> it's, it's just n- new things, right? We're old men. Yeah. You know what? Here's the thing. It's not merely that we're old men and we are used to the things we're used to. Right. It's also that Apple will often update things unnecessarily. (laughs) And uh, like and anytime it anytime it updates uh, iTunes, I always feel like, ah, shit. It says, do you want to update? I said, I don't. But I know you're going to make me eventually, but I'm going to hold off. So I usually wait about two or three weeks before I update it. And invariably I update it and I hate what they've done and it feels completely unnecessary. So we are using an updated version of GarageBand. Yeah. But I I think we talked about this with like, did we talk about ESPN redesigning their site? I think you mentioned it. Yes. Because I had my initial reaction was, Oh, just because it's new. And then I let it settle in and I'm okay with most of it. And I have some specific complaints that I don't like. Well, and And so, but is it just that you don't like, new stuff because i mean there are things about what itunes is compared to what it used to be that still bug the shit out of me sure um but i guess i've also just worked them into it still feels like a workaround yeah like to find to find stuff in my own library sometimes it's Uh, it's hard to know what is i guess i'm used to it it's hard to know what's intuitive and what is not like that there seems counterintuitive watch out (laughs) i just the idea of like there are there have been different no, versions. Literally, of, is a contradiction to say it's hard to know what's intuitive because if it were intuitive, you would. Just well, it's hard know. to de- maybe it's hard to define it. I guess. Oh, I see. Um, you know, because it, because it is, it could be seen as a subjective term. What's what's uh, counterintuitive for you might not be for me as we look at the new iTunes or the new GarageBand or whatever. Um, but like, you know, for example, with this new GarageBand. Sorry, everybody, you don't you don't care. I don't care every, what you actually everyone think Everyone has the experience of yeah, updating yeah. technology. But like just before we were recording, you said, Hey, what about, and then you thought, Oh no, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll name it when I save it. The idea of naming a file when you initially set it up, I think is intuitive. Like waiting until the first time until you like mess with it and then you save it and then like, Oh, you're saving it. Would you like to name it now? It seems somehow wrong, but that is the way the new garage band works. But I mean, that's but that's always the way that Microsoft Word has worked. You don't name a file as soon as you open it in Word. You name it when you save it. Well, I guess it depends on who you are. <laughs> Maybe some people will name it immediately because they like to have it. They like to give it a place, not merely uh, on their desktop, but in their heart. Oh man! But anyway, if you knew how many documents I have on my own computer that are just like document one and document two, <laughs> it would probably or just like automatically named after whatever the first three words of the thing are. Uh, that's something it will do. Um, Okay, so uh, we're on edge about that. I'm also, I don't know how, like, we're recording in the past, right? Yeah. Because by, it been, by the time this goes up, it, we're recording even earlier than usual. Yes. It's been almost a week. Yes. And I don't know whether or not the St. Louis Blues are still in the playoffs Uh-oh. or whether the Minnesota Wild have knocked them off. Right mm-hmm. now, as of this recording, they're down two games to one and playing in Minnesota tomorrow night. Um, so, uh, people listening, they all know, I mean, I'm I'm assuming all of our listeners know exactly what's going on in the NHL playoffs. So they know, and they're either laughing at me or secretly happy, uh, for me, um, secretly because they don't want me to know that they're happy. This is how I think of our listeners. (laughs) 
has mostly just <laughs> you're really constant <laughs> it's like statler and waldorf and if they do enjoy anything we do they mostly keep it to themselves yeah but the minute we stray slightly off format watch out yeah uh but that's enough uh of of this um horse shit let's uh pay some bills yeah all right it, pleasantly so let's pay let's pay bills in the way that we enjoy to which is by telling people about uh products and services that we uh endorse right yeah like, i guess, what I'm saying, I guess you I'm, have summed up advertising <laughs> what i'm saying is we're not doing this begrudgingly like right ugh, like we we're, got cool sponsor we have a cool sponsor today we're also not doing it voluntarily either you know we had a choice that's true that is true we in can america always turn down we couldn't we can turn them away yeah i guess so. i mean it depends on why but okay uh this episode is sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent international and classic films every day movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it that means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy all for only 4.99 a month Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. This week, new movies on the site include, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, I apologize, first name L-A-V, Lav, 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 Lav. Uh, include Lav Diaz's From What Is Before, a rural drama depicting the Philippines in a time of turmoil. Also available is Mirror, Andre Tarkovsky's masterpiece, as well as Monsters, Gareth Edwards' indie alien invasion film. These films and more are available at Mubi.com. There is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. All right, everybody, listen up, because this is you. All right? Yeah, that's right. Listeners, not fans. So if you are listening to this, this applies to you. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I dot com, slash Battleship to redeem now. All right. You know what? I'm on board. All right. Let's bring in our guest. And then we'll talk about whatever bullshit you were hinting at before you did the watch ad. out. Um, let's. Why don't you bring in the guest? All right. Because right now, because I'm steaming mad and I need to cool and calm down all before right. we talk about. Okay. I, the listeners all picked up on your little thing. I'm sure they probably did. Then that's gonna so, that's gonna start some shit. I have no doubt. So uh, <laughs> that's why I said it. Because um, uh, after a while, I get fucking tired of hearing uh, all this shit on Facebook. Anyway, moving on. Uh, and with that, let's bring in our. <laughs> guest i'm so sorry but you know what he's an old friend you open he, the door here to and, we're, and we're gonna walk right through it yeah uh it is our now i forget the official t- editor at large yeah, yeah i think that's what we all right with. large and in charge that's what i say not in charge not it, well, it, <laughs> not you, but you are by being editor at large you are in charge of your own that's true uh, directives and purview that's true you essentially like cartman do what you want <laughs> And I do. Whatever. That's one of <laughs> Anyway, my what's my name? Oh. <laughs> uh, your name, last I checked, is Scott Nye. Happy to be here. I've uh, not updated iTunes in years, or any piece of software for that matter, and it's great. Has it worked okay? Yeah, everything's grown fine. Every- man, now I feel like a sucker. <laughs> but because- do you still have to say no, like every time you log in? Is that- Oh, not every time, no. Oh, okay. Maybe okay. once every dozen or so. Okay. Okay. All right. That's not, I guess I just leave my, 
I never, I never actually open a program. I tend to just turn it on, and it will often be on for days. Oh, I do the same thing until okay. my computer almost crashes because it's so old, and then I have to close it. Yeah, yeah, that can be an issue, and yeah. uh, it's, apparently it's not good to do that, but uh, but we can move on. Anyway, uh, Scott, thank you so much for being here. Oh, do pleasure it. as always. And so. we have plenty of things to talk about, but first, I need you, to, you, need, you clearly have something you need to air out, Tyler. <laughs> No, it's just, it's uh, the idea of. Uh, Are you ready to talk uh, politics and social issues here? I didn't know that's what we we're doing, but sure. Oh, I love boy. it. Uh, no, it's just, and you know, and oddly enough, I w- it occurs to me, like, oh shit, did I just wander into the whole Indiana thing? Because that was that's not the, exactly that was what not you were what I meant about. to do. No, that's exactly um, what you what you stepped in. Yeah, I know, and now I wish I had not, because <laughs> now it's like, oh, there's more to it than I was implying. Uh, no, I guess what, uh, one thing that, that bothers me is, uh, is when people insist that other people, uh, run their businesses a certain way. I'm married to a small business owner and she might have a certain, she doesn't, but she might have certain objections to, oh shoot, but she's a wedding photographer. Okay. Damn it. <laughs> I keep wandering into something I don't mean to, uh, because I don't want people to, uh, imply something that I am not implying. Jen shoots but like you're saying no one at least no one reasonable is disagreeing with what you're saying no reasonable person is saying that someone can't if you're if you own your business you can turn people away for whatever reason and also if you're a citizen you can protest that and you can say whatever you want about that business absolutely or you can also protest and say let's get the government involved and force people legally to not to uh take business that they don't want I haven't heard anything like that. I think I, you, you, you're you not do on this Facebook to yourself. as much as you I know I yourself. am. I know you, I do. You wander, you wade in to the shittiest parts of I want to be <laughs> informed. I want to be no, informed. I'm, I'm perfectly informed. I don't have to wander into to that kind of stuff. Admittedly, I probably do look at comments more than I should. <laughs> I should just stop when the article is over. <laughs> this is why I say that's no when reasonable usually, person. But there are plenty of people, people that you and I know. Well, okay, well, all right, now we're getting into insulting people we know. Um, but, like, there are plenty of people who will regularly say, well, here's what needs to absolutely happen. And they're like, oh, well, if anybody has a problem, like, then they should have to pay the price. Now, of course, I being a political conservative, I say, like, they're already paying the price. They're paying the amount of money that they were going to get paid if they, you know, if they took this person's business, like they're willing to make that sacrifice based on whatever it is, whatever so what, what thing, price whether are these I, other people talking about, they think that they should like be fine, that there should be legal re- repercussions along with them just, you know, not getting the money. This is probably the one area of the role of government in which you and I agree. Actually. All right. <laughs> Although it didn't, didn't, I remember you and I, but I think, I think we all agree here at this table. Yes. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people are not merely uh, unsympathetic, but are openly. I'm not like, sympathetic at all to this pizza. Oh this yeah, oh homophobic right, right. pizza place. Yeah, yeah. But I, they, I, I still believe. I don't even understand why they're making a stand. Who has pizza at a wedding? That's that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> great there are question. there are deeper social evils that we're that we're not addressing. Um, but I, I'm not on their side. Yeah, yeah. at all. I don't empathize uh, with them at all. Uh, but I also know like. Yeah, well, this is how it works here. Yeah, they can they can do what they want, and then we can all go on Yelp and write uh, funny reviews and drag their thing down to one star. Well, that's good for you for saying funny. It doesn't always work out that way, but sure. But that's the best part of this. The best part of any business having this sort of policy 
is reading the Yelp reviews of people. Sorry, the, do you, there was that um, uh, <laughs> that auto mechanic. Did you hear about this? I, I can't remember where it was. Who said uh, the same thing? Like, we don't want any like GoFundMe campaign, but we also I also don't want to work on any gay person's car. And now <laughs> their Yelp reviews are all essentially accusing the guy telling story, making up stories where the guy hit on them or oh, tried right. to like give them a hand job or something or, or talking about cars in ways that are super dripping with gay innuendo. <laughs> um, that, that's the best part of this to me. He might want to rethink that GoFundMe thing, but uh, <laughs> he probably shouldn't have led with that. But uh, at the same time, I kind of admire that. Uh, it's, it's weird. I admire him for saying, I don't know. I don't want to hand out, but also this other thing. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm not. In, I'm, I'm certainly not in sympathy with them. But at the same time, I guess it's that idea of like, uh, what is that? Like, I don't agree with I don't agree with what you're saying, but I'll defend till the death. You're right to say. Yeah, that's I won't go that far. I'm not going to die over these people. <laughs> but uh, I think I probably would. Hey, actually, more power to you. Because I, I actually see it as maybe an ex, maybe an extension of free speech. I don't know. It's, it's, to a certain extent, but I no, mean, it's not. I said maybe. I don't know. I mean, the, their their stated policy is not an extension of free speech. It literally is free. That's what it is. They're they're saying whatever they want. I guess so. And we're allowed to say whatever they want. We want back to them. But I, and I, I don't think, think there should be any law forcing people. In a business, in, 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 a, in a service like that, to serve whoever, the, like I, I, now, if it comes like hospitals, yeah, I think Fair that's enough. a different issue. And and any uh, publicly owned company, I think, is or not publicly yeah, owned, yeah. but like you know, a public utility. Or yeah, something like uh, that. It, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But um, there's plenty of pay, there's plenty of places that gay people can get pizza in Indiana <laughs> and buy this Indiana uh, pizzeria speaking out about this it gives everyone a voice now there's a big conversation about it yeah it's i did have this thought. i see only positives here and i don't know why you, this is i'm more angry with you tyler than with anyone else because you again you do this to yourself i know i do but it, i think it's yourself. important i think it's important to see what whether they are reasonable or not what at least a, a notable number of people on my side or on the other side are saying whether they're the official author of an article or they'll write a very in-depth comment and response to the article and there's plenty of there's plenty of anger towards people on my side people on the other side it just uh and i like the idea yeah, it's so like that's good that's like the, the, too. the non-reasonable people also vote and so i at least want to know in greater numbers <laughs> well yeah <laughs> I don't not, I don't I don't mean to be elitist, but yeah, uh, possibly because um, well, there are greater numbers of them. Oh, boy. Right. <laughs> We're th- thinking most people are stupider than we are. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. Here. Nothing and, elitist going on here at all. <laughs> and stupider than our listeners. Our listeners are also very smart and reasonable. They're that's the smartest, why they're warmest, the show. kindest, most generous people. I've Absolutely. Ever Keep that in mind when you go to comment on this episode. Uh <laughs> Interestingly enough, I will use the concept of stupidity uh, to get us into what we're going to talk about at the top of the show. Um, which we which, are still going to. Are you you're good with that? Yeah, I mean, I okay. forgot what it was, but yeah. Oh, good. All right. <laughs> so the trailer for Jurassic World has been released. Oh, here we go. All right. The movie looks, I'm going to say, unspeakably dumb. Right. Because it, really, it, it literally is about <laughs> the main character can like 
commune with the velociraptors. And you know what? Oddly enough, that I'm kind of okay with. I mean, it's not that I'm okay with it, but, but I, isn't I'm, that, I'm more okay with it in that, like, I feel like that's um, that that's a that transgresses the fundamentals of the franchise. The Velociraptors are like the big bad. But like, in the, if you're, if in you're the grown, third one, they could talk to each other. So this is the logical next step. Oh, I, know, I, you know, I never saw the third one. I was probably kind of better off. That it exists. Yeah, yeah, that's a big win for you. Um, <laughs> but I saw it just like I'm going to see this one. Uh, I'm, probably, I'm probably not going to see this one. If we get the, if we uh, get us just throw that. We probably will. It's Universal is usually pretty kind to us. Thank yeah. you, Universal. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll toss it your way. Well, I don't know if you know, giving anybody the opportunity to see Jurassic world is kind, <laughs> but, uh, sorry, universal, please. I want to say nice things about universal now because they're soon to release pitch perfect two. <laughs> and if the first one is any indication, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trip over myself talking shit about that movie. <laughs> if it's, uh, I'm going to give it a fair shake. Of course. At this point, I will say, uh, that, and I haven't seen the film, and I think I'm probably more inclined to agree with you. You're the only person I know that doesn't like Pitch Perfect. I uh, hate it. You hate it. Yeah. Okay. Well, All right. uh, our, our friends, Hollywood power couple, Susan Burke and Matt Peters, talked okay. about on this very <laughs> podcast when you were out um, that they, they don't like it. If I'd known they were a power couple, I would have tried to be here. <laughs> I would have flown out, flown back back home. Um, but yeah, and so uh, actually, oddly enough, the the communing with uh, Velociraptors, I'm okay with it from a franchise standpoint because it's because the franchise, like the dinosaurs themselves, are evolving. And if if a character is going to commune with any of the animals, then it would have been the the Velociraptors who are set up from the first film as being smarter than any of the other dinosaurs. And so I'm at that. I'm actually okay with it's more just the general tone and the idea that like any sense of Marvel or wonder or excitement. That's, that's long gone. Now it's like, okay, we've seen dinosaurs. We've seen special effects. Now here's just more of them and it's got a certain brand. So you're going to go see it. And by the way, I'm going to go see it. Uh, because not because it's a Jurassic thing, but because I'm a sucker for a creature feature. Like I never saw the film primeval, which David, do you remember you were working at uh, the arc light when that film came out and it was about like, it referred to like oh the Did greatest. Did it work at the archive when that came out? I think so, because um, I think I remember saying like, "Hey, can I can I uh, get a free ticket from you to go see Primeval?" And you're like, "I think it's already out of the theater." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Oh, all right, sorry," um, but uh, but yeah, and it, I think the the campaign was like, "Oh, the greatest serial killer the world's ever known," and it's a cr- like a giant crocodile or something like that. I don't even remember this. And it was movie. based on a true story. Uh, Orlando um, Orlando Jones. Orlando I think Jones. Was, yeah, not yeah. Bloom. A different guy, Orlando Jones, uh, <laughs> though Orlando Jones as Legolas would be a lot of fun. <laughs> um, and so th- because probably because I grew up with Jaws and Tremors and I watched Orca, the killer whale. Not that that not that I'm proud of it, but um, I think the idea of the creature feature is something of a sweet spot for me personally. So I will see more of them than I probably in good conscience should. And so um so yeah, uh, I was wondering if either of you guys or the listeners, if you ever have something where it's like you hit something, uh, a movie that you know is probably not going to be very good or a TV show or whatever, and you feel like that's going to be a big waste of my time, but I'm going to probably see it opening day if I have the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, you can't be as big a fan of Michael Bay as I am without having <laughs> a little bit of that. <laughs> And that has to carry you through most of the movie, especially like the second and fourth Transformers movies. But um, 
actually another trailer we're discussing for this Batman versus Superman. I'm mm-hmm. kind of hoping will be that. Um, it's getting to the point where it seems like it could be so overstuffed mm-hmm. that it's going to be a little stupid. I mean, it's going to be a little stupid anyway, but I mean, yeah. notably so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and invigoratingly so. Um, Invig- oh, okay. Watch out. Are well, you a Zack Snyder fan? I forget. Not really. Okay. But Man of Steel was so self-serious Ugh. and so overblown. That's like... This looks pretty self-serious. Be, I know, but it's such a teaser that like there's so much of the film we're not seeing that yeah yeah that's true percentage wise that worked out <laughs> um, I, tr- I crunched fi- the numbers i think the film's about 15 minutes long right so yeah. i think we've got a pretty good percentage david do you have any like this um increasingly no okay. uh, i'm yeah i mean i guess there are i was gonna say there are certain directors but even then i just like yeah i i've become less of a fanboy about everything I don't know. I mean, I guess, if this, I mean, if there's a series that's ongoing that I like, there becomes a point at which I'm, I'm in for sort of, I mean, I do the same thing with TV. You know, I stuck with, as Scott did, I stuck with Glee all to the end. Yeah. Um, uh, even though, you know, sometimes when you see it on your DVR, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's where I am with like the Hunger Games now. I'm still liking those, but, um, and I guess there's only one left, so that's not a good, yeah. I'm going to see the last one. Uh, but like yeah, if, I don't if think Mockingjay there's... Part One was not good, you were still going to see Part yeah, Two, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the boat I'm in. <laughs> I'm all in it for Philip Seymour Hoffman. So, oh, um, that is unfortunate. Chris. I know. I made a promise myself years ago that I'd see every movie he was in in theaters, and most of that worked out really well <laughs> until uh, he got in the Hunger Games movies. <laughs> um, but do you know what I was thinking about? So it's been 14 years between Jurassic Park movies, right? Yeah. So. Um, to us, because we were adults. Well, I don't know. You're younger than I am. Yeah. Were you in high school when Jurassic Park uh, came out? I was out? about to go into high school. It was the summer before. Oh, wow. You're younger than I thought I was. thought you were. Um, <laughs> oh. So, uh, <laughs> you're younger than I Technically true. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you and I were in college. Yeah. When that came out. So, we remember all of this. Like, mm-hmm. we saw the first one as kids. This feels like, okay, there's been a break in the series, and now it's coming back. Yeah. To kids now, I was thinking about this with um, music because like there's a new Modest Mouse album. And to me, it's like, oh, good. Modest Mouse is back. But I think there's probably kids who are even like starting college now who are like, oh, this old band has come back. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, you know, I used to make fun of 10 years ago. I used like, to make, oh, uh, they reunited or something right. like that. <laughs> I, I, I used to make fun of like uh, or, or, or scoff at like people that we know maybe who were in their late thirties who were still buying like new journey albums. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But now like this year, modest mouse, death cab for cutie, uh, built to spill, like all these nineties and early two thousands, like, uh, indie rock bands are, are back and I'm, I'm excited. And now I'm that guy, but you know what, what? Okay. What I, what I wanted to go back to movies. Okay. When, because of the age, right? When GoldenEye came out, 1995, mm-hmm. it felt like this old franchise is being brought back to life. To me, it did. Yeah. Because I was not, but it was only six years between um, Living Daylights. Is that the 89 one? I think uh, so. I have no idea. Because um, Dalton only it was in, I think, two, right? Maybe three? Well, uh, but I think 89 was the most recent. Yeah. So it was six years. Yeah. That's, not, that's hardly anything. Yeah. Right? But, but it I, felt like a huge, like, they're bringing this back partially because it was a new bond. I think that will also make a, make a difference. But, um, but yeah, it's, you know, for me, 
for me because I was never into for you mentioned like Death Cab for Cutie. Like I still think of them as a newish band. Oh yeah. And I and I think like, oh, are they still around? Like <laughs> and then yeah, they've been around for over a decade at this point. Yeah, I mean, long enough to, uh, oh yeah, more than that, like 15 yeah. years, long enough to like take a break and to have solo projects. And, yeah, um, but for me, it's just like, the fact that I'm still hearing their name and that they have a new album, for me, that only is like, I guess they're, I guess they got staying power. Yeah. Well, no, they're, <laughs> they're just an established band that yeah. just came about well, since I was an adult. And there are also bands who like, you tune out at a certain point mm-hmm. and therefore from that point on anything that's released after that point is their new stuff. Mm. Even if it's over 10 years old now, yeah. it's like, Oh uh, yeah, I really, I was really into like the first white stripes album and distill and white blood cells, but I didn't get into the new stuff. Oh, you mean like elephant, which came out in like 2003? Like, yeah. 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 That's the, the new white stripe stuff. And you know, it's weird. Uh, David, I know you have no patience for this and I actually, as I get older, have less patience for it which is just constantly talking about how it's how life is flying by and it just seemed like the other day that such and such a movie came out whatever um it's it's a thing i don't like to look at it purely like that i do like to look at it in the way that you're talking about with the new jurassic park so it's been 14 years since the last one that means someone born like let's say a couple saw jurassic park (laughs) three and they were feeling amorous Uh and then uh and they got got uh, pteranodon fetishes absolutely oh man who wouldn't who wouldn't (laughs) with those long beaks i hear there's pteranodons in the new one too probably i don't know stands to reason okay um but uh and so they have a kid the kid is now 13 14 and it's just weird to think that this is for that this might be for them like the first Jurassic Park movie. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, I guess this is, they might view it as a reboot, which is a word right. that we didn't have right. when we were yeah. younger. And just, Scott, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on Toronto Tyr- sex? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what dinosaur that is. It's, it's the flying one. It's like, when you think of the pterodactyl, oh, okay. someone who's pedantic about dinosaurs would be like, yeah. they're actually they keep renaming those things. You know, I'm still stuck right, on like, well, like whatever they're is in the 90s. back. Right. Now. Yeah, I know. I just heard that. Which is crazy. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Brontosaurus great... was like, went away. Brontosaurus because... is back is a great sentence, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was but... only gone six years. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they had, Brachiosaurus or Brontosaurus, and then they all like the scientists went. You know, the Brontosaurus isn't that isn't different enough to have worn its own name, and it was like that for like twenty years. <laughs> and they said, "Oh, we found some new bones. It kind of is." And now the Brontosaurus is back. Was the Ultrasaurus ever a thing, or was that just a thing that elementary school kids talked about? I, don't, I, th- I think that's the one that Bryce Dallas Howard makes in all right. World. Oh, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember, you know, when I was a kid. <laughs> All right. I'm old enough that when I was a kid, there were basically like six dinosaurs. Right. You had your, your Tyrannosaurus Rex, your Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Brontosaurus, Pterodactyl. That might be it. Maybe the, <laughs> like the Ankylosaurus. I like that. I don't know what that is. That's the one with like the plates on its back and it like. Oh, yeah, uh, that was yeah. a cool one. I remember liking that one. And that, I think that yeah. was it. I, and that, and what now, else do like, you need? Yeah, well, and then I I go, oh boy, this is, what I'm about to say is really nerdy, everybody, I apologize. So when I go, uh, one of the only games that I continuously play on my iPad is my Jurassic Park builder, and uh, where you build your own Jurassic Park. Um, Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, that's who I am. I also have Tiny Death Star. Anyway, um, but, uh, which is a wonderful Elton John song. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, so. Anyway, um, and now there's like, there's like a 
a billion dinosaurs. And I was like, oh, I've only heard of like three of these. And that's science has uh, gone beyond the the simple the little rubber dinosaurs that I had when I was a kid. As it turns out, they were so focused on whether they could, they never asked if they should. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> damn it, Jurassic Park builder. Uh, now, does Jurassic Park builder? It's a PC game. Uh, I think it can be, but it's I, I it's have on, it on my. Does it ma- does it make sounds? Yes. So you could plug in some earbuds, right, and listen to the sounds of Jurassic Park builder. Uh, yes, but okay. the thing is, like, you know, you have dinosaurs roaring and stuff, so I don't want to plug in anything that's too good of quality. Oh, you're because, afraid to scare you? Because it'll frighten me. Okay, well, then, you know. you d- then don't. But I'm a, I'm a scaredy cat. You Steer know. clear of these tweakedaudio.com ones, right. because they're too good. They're... They're so professional sounding, it's scary. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you, Bruce, you're welcome. <laughs> if you have a little more backbone than than Tyler does, cool. and you can handle those tyrannosaurus uh, tyrannosaur roars, um, then uh, go to tweakedaudio.com where you get professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. And if you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, you get that for one third off. And no shipping charges. That's tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, all right. I don't want to go on and on about the new garage band, but I don't know how many minutes we've been going. Oh, I th- yeah. I think I can change the display, can, but, but I don't want to do it. Is it uh, in measures right now? Yeah, it's like uh, bars and beats right. and stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I can change it, but I don't want to do that while we're recording. All right. Um, that's fine. We'll, fi- we'll, we'll figure out when we're done how long we went. <laughs> Turns out we we go like, I miss my flight tomorrow morning. <laughs> going nine hours. So Lord knows there's no other clocks in existence. I don't have my watch on. What Uh-oh. am I going to do? Um, so and my, and my phone is face down. <laughs> Permanently. Ugh. I glued it to the table. <laughs> so, um, so, Scott. Yes. Uh, you and I uh, saw a lot of each other this past weekend. We, I kept, know. we kept running into each other. It was strange. It was like, we've got to stop meeting like this. We both said, and we laughed. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> Your wife stood by awkwardly. <laughs> Is that what she did? <laughs> no. I'm saying if we actually had the conversation, oh, we if we actually had, yeah. had, yeah, then she would have stood by <laughs> awkwardly. kept tugging on your sleeve. David, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm here too, and but you're just laughing with Scott the whole time. No, what was... What, my my wife and I did is spin around in those crazy chairs at the Hammering Museum. Yeah, which I can tell you were a little nervous about, which everyone is on their first spin. Until I did. Yeah. And then, and then I was like, like, I nothing. don't want to leave. I know. It's the best. So they got these chairs. <laughs> okay. That look like, they look like empty, like, like thread spools. Sort okay. Of. But they're like divoted at, tops, at the top so you can sit in them. Mm. But then you're like leaning forward or back because they're done. The, the bottoms aren't flush with the ground. They're okay. pointed. So, oh, boy. It's kind of like a top. I guess it's kind of like it's, a top. It, yeah. But it's still flat on the bottom, but it's round enough that you could still spin around on it. So much so that you can spin all the way around, which requires you to go kind of backwards and lean back. And it's like, it it's, an it's scary. And then you do it. And, <laughs> and it's, it's a so lot much of fun. fun. Yeah. Can't you fall out? No. I mean, I, mean, I guess you probably could, but you I think, think I'd find saying, a way. <laughs> the natural construction of the chair is such that yeah, should that you feel like you might fall out, but you're you not don't. Yeah. And it's, so it's like a little roller coaster. And where is this? At the Hammer Museum, at the Billy Wilder Theater, hmm. which is where we saw Hu Shen's The Puppet Master. Correct. Or uh, I always, with, with Asian directors, I always feel like there comes a point where I realize I've been saying their name wrong for it 10 years. It is Ho Shen. Yeah, but it's not Ho Shen, it's Ho Shen. 
True. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I really uh, I, I took one on the chin there listening to <laughs> this guy's going on about the background of this movie and the other movies going on at the time. And uh, Chen Kai Ga, which I've been saying Chen Kai Gi for literally 15 years. Uh, and uh, all I'm thinking is like, I'm such a fool. <laughs> I said, who shall Shen to my Chinese friend? Oh, and she yeah. probably was like. What an idiot. And then you said, I, Chinese friend, I'm so sorry. I'm going to, let, let's go out for a nice big plate of pho. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's offensive on two levels. There you go. <laughs> There's actually a whole thread on a movie forum about how to pronounce certain directors' names that I find very useful. Mm. Uh, well, the guy who made um, Uncle Boon Me, yes. you pronounce it Joe, right? <laughs> for all intents and purposes, yeah. yeah. He, he says he's cool with it, so uh, that's good enough for me. Yeah. Um, this is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is these these rep screenings uh and, and and things that that we attend that you attend a lot more often than i do i used to in chicago go multiple times a week a little bit out here i kind of fell away from it got focused on being on top of the whatever the big new thing is got to see got to see whatever's coming out of it we got to see true story you got to see uh gotta. can't can't let a week go by it can't be a week behind on true story <laughs> right conversation gonna pass you right by <laughs> yeah. yeah um but i've been trying to get back into to going to more of these which is why i was excited that you wanted to talk about this as a general topic and it sort of is a companion piece to last week's episode as well yes um i actually pitched it not knowing that you guys would have julia on to talk about that last week but it worked out quite well yeah. um yeah i like you had for years put the emphasis on we know whatever's new and then this past year, I don't know, something that's changed, and it was with this, really the start of UCLA's Festival of Preservation, which is an event they hold every two years to kind of show off the things that they've been restoring over that time. Uh, so I bought a pass for that, which is 50 bucks, and they have like 20 events over the course of a month. So, you know, you go five times or so, it pays for itself. Yeah. I went 10 times, so it's basically five bucks a throw. Yeah. Um, and during that month, because I was so busy, I didn't see any new movies. Um, which was great. <laughs> I only this really the month of what March? March, yeah. Yeah, and you didn't you didn't miss him. Yeah, I I wish I'd seen uh, Amor Fu, which is a foreign film that got a lot of praise. Um, wish I saw How Ha, but um, you know, I would have seen Chappie otherwise. I don't regret missing Chappie. I saw um, Chappie. <laughs> do I regret missing it? I'm gonna say no. Yeah. Uh, I um I regret that I didn't know that it's pronounced How Ha. I was like. What movie? Is he oh talking yeah, about? and I was like, oh, he's talking about Jiao Jiao. Jiao Jiao. I thought you. Yeah, I thought I was mispronouncing that film. How high? <laughs> uh, all these years, I was so with, upset that I missed no, no, it. No, that one was part of the UCLA Festival of Preservation. <laughs> it was time, you know. The the elements had degraded. Uh-huh. And Somebody Man, had to rescue How High. Method Man was there. He's like, so when we made How High, and everyone's like, oh, <laughs> whoops, this is really embarrassing. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I wanted to come on and kind of talk about that because I've been writing about TCM Fest 2, which is the other event I was at in March, writing about that for the website for the past couple of years. This year I did their social producer program, which doesn't mean I can't write about the festival. I just didn't want to do the extra work to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, you're the editor at large. You set, you set your own table. That's true. Yeah. And then once I figured out I could, you know, roll it all into an episode and, you know, create some content otherwise, I there figured, you go. uh, that's the way to go. Um, but I did want to touch on a bit of a continuation of last week's episode, just talking about uh, watching f- movies on film in general. And more and more, I feel that's very important, um, especially older movies. Newer films, I actually don't care that most films are shot digitally. Um, I think after Skyfall and Mr. Turner and uh, Black Hat, you know, digital can do almost anything. 
And there's no reason necessarily to hold up film as superior. Well, I'm going to, um, I mean, I do actually agree with you, but I'm going to cut off some of the criticism that you're going to get, okay. um, <laughs> which is to say that even 4k doesn't have as much information on it as a frame of 35 millimeter, uh, or of 70 millimeter film. No, um, that is true. So I just, people, you know, people might make that. I just want to make sure don't email us that. <laughs> I know that. No, I'm actually glad you brought that up, but films are projected at best in 4k mm-hmm. usually it's 2k honestly yeah um and so if you're shooting a film in 4k and most films are shot you know at higher resolutions nowadays uh david fincher shoots in like 8k so he can actually reframe the shots in the editing he'll zoom in on parts of the frame and completely change the nature of the shot which is hmm. an interesting way of working um so given that there's so few filmmakers shooting on film i or being there's some few films projected on film you know it's not that big a deal to me um, I still love that Christopher Nolan released Interstellar on film. I loved seeing it that way. I'm pumped for uh, Tarantino's 70 millimeter film. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, it makes no difference anymore in terms of distribution. Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel like I did not think we were going to keep bringing this movie up. But True Story was shot on 35. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for all intents and purposes, that means almost nothing to us because none of us is likely to see it on 35. I actually saw it in the worst theater at AMC Burbank, so <laughs> I couldn't have appreciated any of its aesthetic qualities. <laughs> you have, do you rank the different auditoriums at no, AMC Burbank? There, there's just one in particular that is notably awful. Okay. And every time I'm wandering into it, it's like, ah, crap. <laughs> again this week. Which one is it? Uh, it's number four. Number four. All right. I'll have to keep that in mind. You ever go to the AMC Burbank? Occasionally. I yeah. try to avoid it if I can. It's not the best. Yeah. Um, what's, what's your go-to for like a multiplex? Where do that, you go? That is the one. Um, cause it's cheap in the mornings and it's just about as close anywhere else. I can either do that or the universal city, which you have to pay like a ton for parking. Yeah. The, yeah I don't I need to do that. that. Yeah. I like the AMC century city because see, and you said it's good for mornings. AMC century city is good for late nights. I'm sure. Um, they usually like if it's 10 o'clock, and I feel like, oh, I don't have any work to do, and I don't feel like hanging out with anybody. Uh, maybe I'll go see a movie, but almost, but there's very rarely anything uh, that's playing during the week that's playing at that time. You head on down to Century City, there will be something playing at like ten forty-five or eleven, and it works out very well. And parking is super cheap. It that is still costs a long, money to park. What was that? That still costs money to park. It costs like two. It costs like two bucks. Yeah, and they have the bad. reserved seating thing, and I hate reserved seating. Yeah, but also at the same time, like yeah, when you go that, that late, late, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, you will have to worry about a long and yes, frightening walk to your car <laughs> at two a.m. Uh, in an outdoor mall, and it feels that's very empty. Yeah. that's yeah. empty. It feels very post-apocalyptic. Can I tell? I have told that story. Never mind. Yes, I believe so about that mall. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to tell again real quick. Okay, <laughs> I used to work across the street, and I used to work like starting at seven a.m. So I would get to work at like six thirty to six forty-five, and I would go over to the Gelson's grocery store there to get something to eat for breakfast—an orange or some yogurt. I was trying to be healthy. I still try to eat a healthy breakfast. It's a most important meal of the day. Uh, now the Gelson's is open that early. Mm-hmm. The rest of the mall isn't. But I guess when the Gelson's is open, they turn on the music. So it's not dark, but it is walking through an abandoned outdoor mall <laughs> yeah. that has music playing, yeah. which might be creepier. It do, yeah, something like that implies like uh, 
that the apocalypse just yeah. happened. <laughs> that it, something was running and yeah. nobody's watching over it anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like in uh, in Aliens when they're going through the uh, the colony and you see like a donut with one bite taken out of it <laughs> and just like, oh man, this must have happened fast. Um, okay, so the importance of seeing things on 35, old, old, films that were shot on 35. Yeah, or, and especially older films. older films because that's the way they were shot and meant to be exhibited. I mean, even especially before the 50s, there was no television, you know, there was no other way of seeing films. You went to the movies. Um, you sat, sat in a crowd of people with people and you saw the images flicker on screen and sometimes the print was bad, sometimes it was good. You know, that's you got what you got. Um, and I think, you know, 35 millimeter and other formats have something inherent that digital doesn't, especially in regards to light. You know, you're getting the pure light of the projector on the screen mm-hmm. and it's up to the strip to block out that light mm-hmm. in varying patterns that creates the image. And that is a fundamental different way of seeing a movie than watching a digital projection, which is creating the image whole cloth. Um, which isn't the thing I thought about at all before until I saw actually the turn horse and Bellatar introduced it in that context. And then went on to make fun of the quality of the print <laughs> because nothing can be quite perfect enough. Um, but so what is effectively the result of that difference on screen? Now that, now that you say that's something you notice, what, um, I mean, it, how does it, it feel? I guess it feels more natural. You know, there's something somewhere in that room that you can touch that is the object itself. I mean, last week you said you can touch a hard drive, but that's not the thing itself. <laughs> that's like saying you can touch a film canister. Right. You right. know, the thing itself is the film print. Um, and you get, you know, you probably shouldn't touch it too much. That's true. You put on the white gloves. With the gloves. <laughs> um, Back in film school, David, when I had film like in my hands, like a, a film that, that I made, I would like to just, I just put my big old thumbprint right on every frame uh-huh. so that people knew. I made this. <laughs> <laughs> if only for one frame. <laughs> yeah. I, it's like I, a simple little message. And I actually really appreciate that about our film school that even though the technology existed in the early two thousands for us to be editing entirely on, on Avid or Final Cut Pro, which, they, which you would eventually, eventually, but they the made you yeah. in the early production classes, they made you shoot on 16 millimeter and edit. Yeah. 16, like literally yeah my school was the same blade. way and i was yeah. four started four years after you guys so oh uh, yeah yeah literally yeah, literally cutting film and taping it together to make cuts yeah. and you uh, you're you're starting with a bolex you're starting with silent film that you're yeah. cutting with a razor blade and and you work your way towards you kind of work your way through the through film history and to a certain <laughs> right, extent right. you know um which was and i was always very happy about that because it yeah. does give you an appreciation for the physical film um, and it just, uh, and le- okay. So let me ask you this. I I'm, I'm certain that I'm not the only person to make this comparison, but, uh, but I'm not sure if it's a good comparison. Um, you know, people talking about, uh, a record, you know, uh, like an LP oh, versus right. a, a CD. And they say that they prefer that one because the sound itself with the pops and all that kind of thing, uh, sa- it just sounds more organic, but I find myself wondering, is that just a thing that people say, not even not not to be like you know hipsters or pretentious or anything like that. Like, is that a thing they genuinely believe? But when it comes right down to it, the CD is going to sound better, um, but it's not going to sound as organic. Yeah, I mean, it's a question of what you feel is better. Um, mm-hmm. I know last week you talked about the Alien Blu-ray, um, right. which is I haven't seen it, but is probably better than in a certain sense than a print could be. Mm-hmm. But the print's going to have other qualities um and that gets into a matter of taste i think more than anything 
Um, and I tend to fall on more of the side with the record people too. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even though I listen to all digital music now because I'm not that big of a music guy, it's just not where I spend all my money. Um, but and I, I, I want to be like, I want to be like all about quality of sound, but I'd, I will always opt for convenience Yeah, over like I can, you can put thousands and thousands of MP3s on an, on an iPod and yeah, none of them is going to sound as good as it does. Like MP3 is more compressed. It's not going to sound as good, mm-hmm. but I'd rather have, I'd rather be able to carry thousands and thousands of songs around with me. Yeah. And honestly, I almost never listen to music at home. Um, it's, you know, in my car or with me at work. Right. So if I had a record player, I do have some records still, but I have, don't have a record player to want to play them, but I would use it so rarely that it's like, eh. but anyway, I do think the comparison holds up. Okay. Uh, a lot of people talk about painting too. Um, mm that seeing an actual painting is a different experience than seeing a scan of a, or a picture of a painting, which is true. And I think is in some ways analogous to film, but it's but there's not a like, different thing there because there's, you're actually seeing the actual the thing paint. the artist touched. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's where I think the difference is. And that's why I think the record thing is closer, even though, I mean, now if a new album is released on a record, that's like, you know, it's not like they recorded it onto the actual record and right. then, repress that they recorded it digitally and then right. pressed a record yeah yeah um you know uh but uh something else uh, that uh, maybe we've been <laughs> i had an experience back in january maybe early february um that i almost felt a little guilty about so i had seen um i think you were you were there in the theater the first time i saw inherent vice yeah. um you had already seen before and that was digital projection yeah and then toward the end of its long run at the arc light my wife and i went to see it again mm-hmm. on 35 and it's probably even 70 at the arc light uh yeah you know what i think you're right it was 70 which to me if something shot in 35 then 70 <laughs> is like i think that was more of a marketing thing uh, but, yeah you know, um but um this print had clearly been through the projector multiple times a day for a month and a half at that point. And I kind of felt like, Oh, this is like, this is a new movie. I maybe would rather have the experience where it seems more pristine. Like, whereas the movie, you know, the movies that I happened to see with you this past weekend, like if there's parts like there was one of those Argentinian movies we saw had a whole reel that was louder than the rest of the movie. I don't know if you noticed that, (laughs) I kind of, that's all part of the charm for and, something like yeah, that. Yeah. And but the first reel of the puppet master had like all those marks on the side. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, if a movie's, if a movie only came out two months ago, there's less charm in that to me. Or I, I was kind of just like, Oh, maybe I would have rather just seen it in 2k or 4k. Maybe it's because I saw inherent vice on film first, but that to me like belongs on film to the extent that when I saw it digitally, I was just like, ah, I don't know. I mean, with the, flicker and like the whites are more powerful on film uh and even the damage like it's kind of rough isn't that always the way (laughs) (laughs) and that's what we're trying to change here (laughs) glory (laughs) um but yeah um i guess kind of the nature of the film inherent vice it's a rough and tumble film so i liked seeing it on film it had kind of a no i'm sure if i if i had seen it opening weekend on film yeah. as opposed to like the last weekend that it was playing. Oh, I saw it near the end of its run too. I saw it several times in theaters and I still liked seeing all the damage, like sitting yeah. up close up front and getting the, like I said, the flicker. And I, I love weird things about small things about film. Okay. Let me ask, let me ask this. Uh, this is cert- uh, probably not uh, analogous to it, but this, this is what 
uh, came to mind uh, suddenly. So one of the reasons that I had a problem with the film or with the project, I guess, uh, Grindhouse, yeah, is that <clears throat> you know there would be they tried to make it as though it was an actual Grindhouse experience where there would be uh, there would be uh, like entire scenes missing that are particularly sexual because. Right. Back in those old grindhouse theaters, the projectionist would cut that out and keep it for himself and that sort of thing. Um, and just that sort of so really trying to recreate certain aspects of, of the experience. And as I was, and I had a problem with it because I found myself thinking like, okay, so nobody liked that those reels were missing. Nobody liked that those scenes were missing except maybe... I, I apologize is the only way I can, except for like movie nostalgic people like, mm-hmm. like hipsters and such people like a Tarantino who has a res- who has such a respect for and such an appreciation for how things were, uh, in every possible capacity because he, like all of us will romanticize not merely the thing, but also the experience of the thing. And, um, John Carpenter's the thing I'm referring <laughs> to the member of the fantastic four. Thank you very much, David. Okay. <laughs> uh, the character was actually created by John Carpenter, though. It's stra- <laughs> very strange. So, um, damn it, what was I saying? Uh, uh, grindhouse. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so uh, so I remember just having this problem. Like, I'm sure that if, if like, any audience at the time who would, who would go to see a Grindhouse movie, the minute, like, a lap dance is about to start and then it cuts to the next scene, I'm sure that was a crowd full of people like, this is bullshit, I, this is not what I paid for. And I'm sure even he himself was like that, but then he went on to become a, a certain type of filmmaker and then he would romanticize that in his mind. Uh, but it always felt to me like he was sort of slumming it. And so in the same way... Um, I find myself sort of like what, what David is saying, like uh, a filmmaker, they don't make their movie. Certainly these days, even if they shoot it on film, they don't make it. uh, I think anticipating or even planning on that. It's going to uh, like degrade a little bit, you know, Um, they would, I think they would still prefer it be, that it would look as pristine as it possibly could. That is how they shot it, whether it be on digital or on film, but certainly on film, there's a uh, possibility that it'll, that'll degrade. And so I guess one of my, and maybe this goes back to the, the record player thing. Like for somebody like myself who very, I, I feel like it takes a lot for me to notice a difference. Like there has to be something like, okay, there's definitely something wrong with this. It's either like, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, too dark or maybe it's too bright or I can see scratches or whatever it is. It takes a lot for me to notice. Um, and so it was actually very helpful right now as you were talking about how like on film whites are brighter and stuff like that. Um, but by and large, do you, and maybe this is more of a devil's advocate question, like the, the whole, f- the whole, like it, something needs to be seen on film, even if it looks worse. Like, is that an argument made by people who might, romanticize just the concept of film more so than actually getting the best possible viewing experience. Well, I, like I said before, it depends on what your definition of best is. Okay. Um, I mean, to me watching, especially a DCP, a 
It's a digital projection of an older film. It just feels dead on the screen to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any life to it. Um, you know, it's fine for home viewing. I watch a ton of movies on Blu-ray. That's most of what I write about these days. And I love home video. I don't want to give people the impression that, you know, I'm against the Criterion Collection or whatever. I do a whole podcast about the Criterion Collection. Um, and the best movie I saw in the past two months was actually on Blu-ray. Um, what was it? Uh, Wild River, Eli Kazan's movie, mm. is incredible. Um, anyway, but if I'm going out to the movies, I want to see something that I can't see at home. And that means seeing, especially for an older movie, seeing something on film. And as many movies have been put on Blu-ray, and there's more and more coming every month, whatever people say about the home video industry, it seems to be plugging away pretty strong. Um, you know, not every movie gets the alien treatment or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so to see, uh, just pull a random example from stuff I saw, or Douglas Sirk's The First Legion, or no, uh, Journey into Light. Yeah. First Legion was his movie. <laughs> there's on these double bills, so I can't remember who did what. Um, <laughs> it's this... Douglas Sirk movie that, you know, not one of his better ones, not one of his more acclaimed ones, but, you know, to see that in pristine, in a new restored print, like, I'm not going to get that at home, certainly. Mm-hmm. And even if it was a little damaged from just, like, the one or two times it must have run it since restoring it, that's still something. And, you know, even if filmmakers aren't planning on their uh, films degrading in a certain way, they are accounting, at least in the editing, for real changes and stuff, mm-hmm. which, you know, Blu-rays don't accommodate for because there's no, you know, real changes. Right. But there's all these little things about seeing a movie on film that I think makes it really stand out, especially if you watch a ton of them. And that's what I've been doing this year is watching, trying to focus more on seeing older movies on film. Um, I do want to come back to a question, David, you were asking earlier, which is a specific example of what I've been talking about. Um, And I'm actually going to talk about something that I saw at CineFamily before Preservation Fest started, which is this movie called Wax Experiments from 1927. There's this movie, uh, I can't remember the director's name now. It's a German guy or something. David's going to look it up. <laughs> I'm, I'll be impressed if you're going to pronounce his last name, because I know that's a, that's a hurdle. Okay. Um, but it's a movie he made over five years. Of uh, It's essentially an animated movie in which he took these wax sculptures and slowly carved them out frame by frame, not to create like a claymation kind of thing, but to create like kind of an abstract movement with clay. Hmm. Oscar Fischinger. There you go. Um, and so if you're watching that on film, you realize that this guy's taking one frame at a time of this slowly morphing wax that he doesn't, isn't totally controlling, just kind of chipping away at it and just kind of seeing what happens. And the process of that, I don't feel like would be as apparent if I were to see it, you know, on YouTube or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's why I can't argue with that. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, I think this is. Uh, sorry, David, go ahead. What, what, what question of mine did that tie into? Uh, several minutes ago, uh, you asked for a specific example of um, something that, you know, the direct thing I'm talking about in that film, where you're seeing oh. the flames oh, okay. flicker by, you're yes, seeing yes, the yes. light. Okay, you know. yes. Um, yeah, I feel like this is an important conversation to have, especially for somebody like myself, for whom certainly the, as as I've gotten older, film is a visual medium like the content of that is something that i've come to appreciate but then there's there's so many things to consider including what it was shot on how you are seeing it you know um and actually something that that just fascinates me is what you guys just talked about with inherent vice that it was shot on 35 but then they made a big uh i'm gonna say hullabaloo (laughs) about showing it on 70 doesn't that make it look worse? 
No, no. I think it um, just looks, but there's there's no more information. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it seems like it'd be a little just a little bit softer. No, I mean no, I saw it on thirty five and on seventy. And okay. Because the, well, the, the screen is the same size. Right. So I guess. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think. I guess if you had a 70 millimeter uh, reel, you could project. Uh, does this follow? You could project it bigger and it still maintain yeah, the crispness, whereas the 35 should. has. But it, but if the screen's the same size, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. And everything at the arc light, you know, when they built the theater, is still projecting on film. So. Okay. Yeah, and it's and so like this is very helpful for me. Um, because, you know, when I, uh, I think David, when we went to school, I remember our, instru- our instructors said, or at least some of the ones that I had were always very excited when they were able to show us something on film because yeah. it was often like, you know, we'd watch the DVD or often the laser disc. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really? A laser disc. Yeah. Every <laughs> once in a while they'd have a laser disc. Just what was ever, whatever oh, yeah. was at the library, saw, you know, I don't know if you did my class, you probably did saw a 16 millimeter print of raise the red lantern. Yes. Really? Yeah. Really interesting. It was. And it looks, and that's the thing is like, and I remember if you were to ask me, Hey, what does raise the red lantern look like? I would say it's gorgeous and really grainy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I, but I, I have no doubt that that is not necessarily, that was not a, that was not, part of what the director intended was it for was for it to look grainy and so well it's I, also it's this film that's probably been shown to right. four classes every <laughs> semester for 20 years right but doesn't that like i have a hard time not getting frustrated at that like if they'd had it on there was no blu-ray at the time and even dvd was kind of new uh <laughs> but like if they'd had that on in a digital format then they would then it wouldn't have degraded it would have looked as good as they could have made it look I don't know. It's, but that's a 16 millimeter print. I mean, well, yeah, that's and true. that's an example of how this whole process has been flawed. I mean, there's probably been 16 millimeter dupes since almost the beginning of film. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the process of trying to replicate film in a cheap format has you know been with the medium forever. Yeah. Um, and I'm just I'm just glad that there are still uh, arenas, at least in Los Angeles and New York and other big cities, where you know there's still a home for film. And I think for me, at the very least. The, the conversation last week and this week is making me realize that like, okay, it is my, I feel like I have responsibility as a viewer now to look into, okay, how is this film shot? Is this, is the format in which I'm seeing, is this how the director wanted me to see it? You know, and sometimes maybe you don't have a choice and you just, you can only see it digitally. But thankfully, I think because we live in Los Angeles, I feel like you can, if a director shot something on film, you probably have multiple options uh, to see it on film specifically like on 35 millimeter sort of i mean uh, a, a new film yeah yeah i mean no. if it's, if it, Unless if, it's christopher if it's, nolan yeah, or tarantino or, or paul thomas anderson yeah that's kind of it yeah <laughs> the director not. really has to push for a film print to be made interesting um and i'm trying to think what the there were there were some big um uh, what uh what was the tommy lee jones movie from last year the Holmes one. The Holmes one. Yeah. Um, that was shot on 35. It was probably pretty hard to find uh, projected on 35 I'd, here. I mean, it was released by Roadside. I doubt they made a print. Right. I'd be shocked if they did. This this leads to actually another question that, that might not be... I apologize. I've got so many questions. I know that uh, we probably should move on to, to other things. But um, why do you... Like, why was Tommy Lee Jones... Like allowed and i'm sure he paid for a lot of it himself but like 
if it was never going to be shown on 35 and and film is costlier than digital and it's an indie film anyway that's probably not going to be making a great deal of money like why did the studio say oh that that's okay let's let's just do this on film the economics of it are actually trickier than it may seem on the surface like i know uh the dp for the a walk in the woods um this upcoming movie with i think redford and nick nolte um, talked about how he actually figured out it was cheaper to shoot on film because they're in such remote locations hmm. and they didn't have a way of like uploading it so they could fill up these expensive cards, you know, for hmm. a month or however long they were out there. Or they could, you know, shoot on film, which they could essentially, you know, predict a little bit better and yeah. just transport back, I guess. And the Homesman is certainly shot in some remote yeah. locations. So um, I don't know if that's the entirety of it. You know, sometimes financiers are just willing, you know, if they're working with Tommy Lee Jones, you know, they're right. probably willing to give him a little bit more leeway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it really and, just depends um, on who shot that. Rodrigo Prieto. Uh, it could be because he, he's probably a guy who has at least some pull. Yeah, you think so? Hope so. He's a great DC, DP. Yeah. Um. So yeah, if we're done with that section, I can. Yes, it is Rodrigo Prieto. I love these cell phone things. Um, <laughs> these cell phone things. <laughs> um, and now we are once again uh, we're showing our age, David. Yeah. <laughs> This has been this is a very interesting conversation, but we're talking about thirty five more than I than I expected we would. I, I, I kind of um, which it's turned out to be very interesting, but I wanted to talk more about yeah, these sure. like series, like rep, retrospectives and rep series and stuff that uh, that that uh, that that you've been going to and and seeing and doing something that I even when I did go all the time rarely did, like committing to a series and trying to see a bunch of that from one series. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, um, which I, is not a way that I've done that very often. Yeah. Again, until this year I hadn't much either and I'm really glad I am. Yeah. Um, I remember when I first moved to Chicago, the Cisco center was doing a month of, uh, like it was for a month. It was like two Boonwell films a week. Oh wow. And I crammed in as many of those as I could. And I was like, this is great. And then I didn't really, it's tough. I mean, <laughs> yeah, got a lot else going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this, it all kind of kicked off, like I said, with the UCLA's Festival of Preservation. Um, this was the first year that they preserved anything digitally. It was uh, Sam Fuller's Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street, which is coming out on Blu-ray this year, and you guys got to see. It's okay. the movie that people who don't like Inherent Vice claim Inherent Vice is. <laughs> it's completely bonkers. And I would be actually surprised if Paul Thomas Anderson didn't see it before doing Inherent Vice, because it's about a private eye. It's a completely insane story, and it has the music of Can in almost oh, wow. exactly the same point at which hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson used it in Inherent Vice. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, yeah, uh, I definitely recommend people check that out when it comes out on Blu-ray this year. It's, you know, it's Sam Fuller at his most anarchic, and it has this detective who's, like, kind of bad at his job. He tails this woman to a movie theater and gets so wrapped up watching Rio Bravo that he forgets to <laughs> follow her on the way out. <laughs> and it's just him sitting there being like, oh boy, get him, Duke. Um, and it ends with him being challenged to a duel, but he has no idea how to sword fight. And so he's just like, oh, what? Why would I sword fight you? And the it's very you know, suave European guy is trying, keeps coming at him. So he just starts throwing swords at the guy oh. for like three minutes. <laughs> There's a there's a Firefly episode that might have really? been inspired by that oh. where yeah Mal who is not a swordsman right gets into it into a duel yeah so strange I didn't <laughs> I, I wonder if they yeah yeah maybe was inspired by the other 
I'm sure Sam Fuller was inspired by Firefly. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely the way that went. I think I knew. I think people knew which one I meant when I said one's inspired <laughs> by the other. Um, but yeah, I already wrote about uh, Men in War for the website. Um, it's an Anthony Mann war movie that is as close as it gets to the era for recognizing that war is kind of nonsensical and insane and people die for sometimes no good reason just because they happen to be there. Um, and so it's got a lot going in that department. Um, some other notable stuff from the series, there was this incredible uh, sort of avant-garde movie from the 60s called Brandy in the Wilderness. Um, the director didn't go on to do much else. He made a fortune in Silicon Valley shortly after and then just got comfortable, I guess. Um, but he was there to introduce the movie. And I remember, David, a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about how you hate long introductions and you sort of realize at a certain point, where is this guy going? Yeah. This was definitely one of those introductions <laughs> because he started with like the foundation of philosophy <laughs> um, and insisted that he was going to connect it up to, you know, uh, the sixties when he made the film. And just as he was starting to, he said, uh, you know, there were a lot of really disgusting orgies and drug parties in the sixties in Silicon Valley and nobody ever talks about it. And then he walked off stage. <laughs> and at that moment, the whole thing was kind of worth it. Yeah, um, the guy at, at the Hu Shoshen, at the Puppet Master, he did go on for a while, but I have to admit, even as a guy who is against people going on for too long before movies, um, that was like on topic and interesting stuff, talking about uh, what was going on in Taiwan, where Shaoshan yeah. was, and in mainland China and in Hong Kong all at the same time, and uh, these burgeoning film scenes uh, in the early 90s. That was really interesting. Although he did that annoying thing of talking about how he's going to keep it short and then not <laughs> keeping it short, but taking up more time to talk about who's going to keep it short. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I do agree otherwise. He actually introduced a couple others last yeah. night and was uh, very helpful to that. I'll get that in a second. Um, the other thing I was going to say about Brandy in the Wilderness is one of those. Um, like private property, actually, another movie that was shown there. You know, these movies were shot very cheaply in the 60s, um, very much rush jobs, and you can kind of get that with the print. There's a certain quality to it that, you know, you can tell it's not studio-bound or that people didn't totally know what they're doing at each second. So to see stuff like that on film, you know, you kind of get more of the natural quality of what they're working with and what they're going for. Um, The other stuff, it's not... As, you know, film-specific, but like I've said before, it's just great to see these things on film, even if there's not, like, a specific tangible connection to it. Um, film just has certain qualities that digital doesn't. Um, so I already mentioned The First Legion, this great Douglas Sirk movie that ends with uh, Honest to God Miracle and is, like, one of the most interesting Hollywood films about faith that I've probably ever seen. Um, and it was paired with Journey into Light, another movie about a guy struggling with his faith um, that starts out like unbelievably broadly in terms of the acting. And it starts Sterling Hayden, who wasn't a trained actor at all. And sometimes you could see that on film, even though I love the guy, um, but it settles down to a very cool rhythm. And it's um, a very, what's that one called again? A journey into light. Journey into light. And it's a very honest exploration of uh, he, you know, he's a preacher who for reasons I won't spoil feels that, you know, he's kind of been cast out not only by uh, God, but also his faith and the people in his community who support him, but only when it's convenient for them. Um, so he goes and essentially becomes a hobo and in the experience of coming up from the bottom, you know, kind of relearns the fundamentals of faith, which for me, it's, uh, 
connecting more with the Catholic faith than anything else, um, really connected with me pretty powerfully. Um, some other stuff that was shown, there was a great, uh, damn it, I can't think of her name. Um, ah, I'll think of it in a second. It was called uh, My Best Girl, though. It was a really uh, cool romantic comedy uh, from the 20s that uh, was really adventurous in certain aesthetic ways and was just like deeply moving. And these old uh, twi- silent romantic comedies sometimes get a bad rap, but uh, as much as silent comedy is kind of held up these days is like as good as it gets. Um, uh, silent dramas to me are so powerful because you don't even have to mess with that dialogue. You can just have people have faces, have expressions, have emotions. And it's all you were trying to think of the actress. Yeah. Mary Pickford. I know somebody obvious. Yeah. Mary Pickford. Yeah. Um, it also showed uh, the big broadcast, which is this movie from the 30s. It was uh, Bing Crosby's first starring role, and you can see right away why he became a star. Um, even though the movie's about how narcissistic he is and how he wants to commit suicide, which is a strange way to kick off your film career, um, but he's so charismatic and uh, enjoyable there. Um, that's basically- this is all the Festival of Preservation. Yes. Okay. Um, among some others, uh, you know, they also show some stuff that's kind of whatever, you know, I'm glad it's preserved for somebody, but it can be, you know, thirties programmers can be a little like they just had to get something in the theater. Uh-huh. And so stuff like, uh, I can't remember the name of one of them, uh, but it was a Spencer Tracy cop movie that was just kind of like, <laughs> okay, he, no, go ahead. Oh, sorry. So, um, I know. Were you going to say something no. entertaining? About the... I, not that I could think of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you were you were glad that I mm-hmm. had the sharp intake of breath, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that was your that was your uh, life preserver. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but all now you said um, pigeon Beethoven thing. <laughs> Dead pigeon on Beethoven Street. I remember two of the words. <laughs> um, uh, you said that was preserved digitally. Yeah, I'm not was sure it, the reasons for that. So it was projected. Digitally? Yeah. Okay. It was the only film they projected digitally over the month. Um, to get back into the film thing, I'm curious because you're so, you're so, uh, you know, you've, you've drank the Kool-Aid on the 35 <laughs> millimeter thing here. Um, Won't shut up about <laughs> it. I know. But now a, a few years ago, I guess it would have been 2012 for the 50th anniversary of Lawrence of Arabia. Um, AMC, the aforementioned AMC Burbank, um, showed Lawrence of Arabia in 4k. Yeah. Um, would you go to like, you don't get that many chances to see Lawrence Arabia on the on a big screen. It plays like six times a year at the air or Egyptian. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And on 70 too. Uh, I've seen it on 70 as well. Yeah. Um, okay. Maybe Lawrence Arabia is a bad example <laughs> then. Uh, I don't know. What's well, something that doesn't play very often? Well, like I, Sunset Boulevard. I don't know. That, yeah, play, that probably plays a ton pl- here too. They, yeah. Jen and I went and saw a uh, rear window at, uh, the, the AMC at, uh, universal city walk uh like amc was doing some series i don't remember i think i think it was a tcm related and um and i don't know if it was shown on film if i had to guess i would say probably digital yeah um but yeah and i remember i mean it still looked you know looked beautiful but uh but yeah i feel like that's probably not one that is shown a whole lot i feel like we're showing it next week actually really that's right because i (laughs) i Saw that you tweeted about it. Uh, where is it showing? At the Arrow. And I, do you think they're are they showing it film? They are. I'm going. Oh, I, I haven't seen it on the big screen ever, so I'm very. Oh, oh it's great. Right. Yeah, Boy, it's sure. wonderful. Uh, okay, so I can't think of an example. <laughs> Let's say there's a movie you like. It doesn't screen very often. The only way you're going to see it is digitally in a theater. 
Will you go? Will that be less of a priority for you now? It's definitely much less of a priority. There's stuff showing on film now with the new Beverly literally every day in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, but it's I, that Tarantino stuff. Like, I mean, it gets old real quick, right? The first, when he <laughs> I didn't want to we say get that, it. I guess like, we get week. it. It's a bad movie. <laughs> we got it. No, the first, it's worth nothing. The first three months when they reopened, when he was programming, it was an amazing array of stuff. You know, I saw a double bill of Morocco and his girl Friday there. Um, and right, yeah, they showed yeah. like super rare stuff from the 60s and 70s and you know stuff i'd never heard yeah, of the, the, well there was also one that he'd never actually seen yeah that i can't it was just he just like it was like i i have this print it I seems to match up well with what the main feature is i think it was so that racing half, documentary or something what was what a racing documentary okay. i can't remember the name of it um but yeah when he was programming it it was awesome They've done two months of 90s stuff, and I haven't been there at all. In part because I tried to go one night when they were showing Chunking Express, and it was like just jam-packed. You'd, in that theater, if you don't get a good seat, you're not going to see anything. <laughs> Especially if it has subtitles, it's like you're dead. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I just turned away. Um, and you know, the 90s, I think, is kind of an overrated decade anyway. So um, I don't know. I, I think I, mean, I felt that way for a <laughs> while, but I've, uh, as I've you know, come to experience more world cinema yeah there's there was actually a lot of I mean, we were just talked about the chinese the mainland taiwan hong kong all that stuff going on in the 90s was pretty uh, uh the stuff that fantastic. the new beverly is showing from the 90s the train spottings the fight clubs you know oh, okay. oh yeah i but, like train spotting i don't like fight club i like fight club just fine i'm just saying like no, it's not very good though okay <laughs> well and i, I feel like <laughs> train spotting but greater than sign <laughs> if, we're, if we're talking in like in twitter language, in, in twitter language yeah. train spotting <laughs> greater than carrot thing yet uh, several probably club. greater than carrot <laughs> right yeah and i feel like um you know to go to uh the 90s and i know this isn't necessarily what we're talking about but uh and maybe this can be said of every decade i'm not i'm not really sure i think i've been thinking about the 90s uh lately as a as a movie decade um the idea of so there's like, you know, the mainstream films that everybody knew about. Then there's the indie films that everybody knew about. And then there's like a third or maybe even a fourth layer of movies that are great that are, that would probably be called indie. Uh, definitely are actually. Um, but they didn't have the flash of some, uh, 90s indie films, like one that David, you and I really love. And Scott, I think you, I think hate, <laughs> that's not true. I don't think you hate it is uh, one false move. Um, oh yeah. That's I've never which, seen it. I thought we watched it for movie night once. I wasn't there. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, you, there's no way you would not like that movie. I think you would like <laughs> it quite fantastic. a bit. You know, and then uh, Red Rock West is one that we really like. Yeah, they actually um, they did show that at the New Beverly. Okay, give them some credit. Okay, that's great because that is one that you know. And oddly enough, when I think of uh, like the '90s and I think of movies that I particularly like and that very few other people seem to know about, I always go One False Move, Red Rock West, and Lone Star. Um, did you ever see Lone Star, David? Oh, I've seen it many times. Yeah, it's marvelous. And so um, I saw it at the Arrow, actually. Really? Um, I'm guessing it was 35. It was a double feature of Lone Star and Brother from Another Planet. Okay, so it's a John Sayles thing. Yeah, which and okay. I had seen Lone Star before, but never seen it in a theater. And I had never seen Brother from Another Planet, which is it good. It's so good. Like, don't be fooled by the fact that it has a goofy name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but you should totally you should embrace its goofy name. Yeah. It's, it's got Joe Morton in it, right? Such a fantastic movie. Yeah. Yeah. I and like, I like uh, it has. Um, de- uh, then unknown, not that he's like a s- superstar now, but, uh, David, Tr- David Strathairn or mm-hmm. Strathern or whatever in a very small role, uh, but yeah. he's delightful. And he shows up in like almost every John sales thing, yeah. but, but yeah. And so I feel like, you know, any theater that, uh, so 
I'm just, uh, Red Rock West. They showed Red. They did show that. Like, yeah. That's good. It shows that they're willing to kind of go deep cuts and not just uh, not just like oh Fight Club. It's like oh yeah, none of us have seen Fight Club, <laughs> The Matrix. Yeah. They showed the, the Matrix. Really? Yeah. yeah. Did they show The Crow? Uh, I don't think so. Did they show Doom Generation? I don't even know what that is. Really? No. Oh, that's uh, see, this is a, this is your your our, right. our age difference showing. Uh, Doom Generation is a fantastic movie that Tyler hates <laughs> um, because it is uh, exuberantly corny think of everything that you and don't like all the excesses you don't like from 90s movies yeah, okay <laughs> now put them all into one yeah uh, but it's a greg Araki movie oh okay um that explains a lot makes fucking natural born killers look like paris texas <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i uh, i really like doom generation but you're kind of supposed to be laughing at it the whole time right it's really and ridiculous and i think that's my that's one of my issues is that you're supposed to be laughing at it but like there are still emotional consequences that the characters seem to be feeling and meanwhile we're just like ah, ha, 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 that's what you get for being in a 90s movie but you know i, I might just, be the first person to make this comparison or might be the millionth person <laughs> makes comparison i'm intrigued but scott as someone who appreciated glee okay. you might like doom generation because you can carry both those things at the same time <laughs> yeah. this is ridiculous and there are actual character and emotional stakes going on here those are my time. favorite things to carry at once <laughs> it's, uh, yeah it's, but it's a kind of it's there's a running there's a running gag in doom generation where every time they stop at a convenience store their total comes to six dollars and 66 cents that sounds a little annoying <laughs> there are three characters guess what their last names are when you put them all together uh, i don't, I don't remember that red white and blue <laughs> think about that is your mind fucking blown man oh good god now i'm in a bad mood I th- and i was already in a bad mood because now i'm because i've been debating for the last 30 minutes whether or not i'm going to insist that we cut out that uh, thing from before um about no, uh, businesses and stuff i'm not sure we could but well, now not sure we can make a clean cut Especially now, we'd have we to brought it up that's twice. Well, that with no we'll time to, code here. That means we'll have to cut out the Doom Generation talk, which is fine with me. Um, I'm sorry. Go on, Scott. You were well. While you're thinking about that, I'll talk briefly about TCM Fest. Um, I already wrote about Ruben Mamoulian's Queen Christina for the website, which is an excellent uh, 1933 melodrama that is pre-code in all the right ways, but without being. There's a segment of classic film fans that are obsessed with pre-code and really kind of get off on all its kinks and quirkiness and stuff. Exactly. Absolutely. I am not necessarily one of those, but I do appreciate when they're folded into, you know, whatever the nature of the movie is. Which, have, have you read Mick LaSalle's book, Complicated Women? No. About the about uh, female movie stars of the pre-code era? It's really interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, basically, from the 30s to the 50s, like, there were infinitely better roles for women than there are today <laughs> right, like yeah. by a shocking degree. And Queen Christine is frankly one of them. It's a, about a woman who's, you know, a proud queen and ruler of the land who also really enjoys sex and makes no apologies for it. And that's kind of awesome. Um, yeah. I'm all for that. Aren't we all, especially when it's Greta Garbo. Hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, they also showed young Mr. Lincoln, which any John for anytime you can see John Ford on film, um, the guy, people often talk about like painting with light as a thing in film. And that is John Ford all over. And especially young Mr. Lincoln, which I'd seen five or so years ago, didn't really care for, and just was almost in tears by the end of it this time. It is Hmm. a wonderful movie. Um, I do also want to briefly mention they won't forget, which isn't like film specific, but it's this awesome 1930s social conscious movie. That's about a guy who, due to the structure of the movie, you would assume is innocent of the crime he's convicted of, but you never find out if he is or not. 
And mm. so you're left th- figuring out if the treatment he received as a result of that is just even if he is guilty, um, which is a level of doubt that uh, not many films are willing to indulge in, which I really appreciated. Mm. Um, um, real quick, yeah. I want to interject. I think the only John Ford film I've ever seen on film was at the Gene Siskel Center. It's uh, not one of his better known films called Two Road Together, and it's awesome. It's, what uh, year is that? Who's in it's that? 61. that it's 61. Oh, okay. No, it's James Stewart, uh, Jimmy Stewart, sorry, and Richard Woodmark from 1961. And Jimmy Stewart plays an asshole, which is... Uh, that's what he did in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, which is great. <laughs> he started to be like, screw this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's a re- that was a really cool movie. Uh, anytime I, any chance I get to recommend Two Road Together to people. Yeah, I'll have to remember that because... No. I'll watch almost anything John Ford made. Um, the real highlight, though, especially from a print perspective, is they did a, a night or a block of hand crank silence in which this guy brought in this hand cranked projector from like 1909 that he'd kept in shape and literally hand cranked a series of shorts and short uh, like 15 minute features. The longest they showed was a trip to the moon, which I've seen a billion times before. Mm-hmm, but, right. you know, at a certain point, you're like, there's a guy back there actually moving the film through the projector. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah that's um, a new level. Yeah. I've, I've seen silent films with live accompaniment. Yeah, and they had live before. accompaniment mm-hmm. there. Uh, uh, yeah, I saw, yeah, I saw, actually, I saw a trip to the moon with live accompaniment at at the silent movie theater before oh, nice. CineFamily yeah. owned it, which I think you didn't even live here. When no. you lived here, it was already CineFamily. Yeah, right? for a couple of years even. Yeah, okay. Um, but they still do silent shows every month, and I try to go to them because they're awesome. <laughs> And, you know, it, uh, the idea of the guy, you know, hand cranking the, the film, I feel like that does speak to something that we were talking about, uh, at the, towards the beginning of, of the episode and, and last week as well. The idea of feeling it's, it's actually even more than just, um, more than just, uh, the principle of, well, this is the way the filmmaker meant to see it. It's more than just, this is, uh, the best possible visual quality or, or whatever. Um, it can be, and this is, this is where I think I can understand the, the Tarantino idea, which is, um, if you're a film fan and you're not afraid to look backwards and, and look through, uh, look at the history of film and that sort of thing, then you can feel a certain connection with, uh, with, the this is going to sound weird the whole of film like the the concept of film that this is where it started and now i'm watching it the way they did so you're you're you feel a connection or at least i do with fans from you know 80 years ago or something like that and then the filmmakers from 80 years ago and then and it can it can really help you to sort of sort of re-fall in love with film uh again in the same way for me that like looking at a painting, as I said last week, looking at a painting can help me fall in love with that painting again. Like I, in my, in my living room, I have a, I have a print of Nighthawks. Uh, but then, and I, you know, you've seen that painting a million times and I like Edward Hopper in general, but I always thought Nighthawks was really special. And then you go to the Chicago art Institute where they have the actual Nighthawks and it's always, it's, it's much bigger than you think it's going to be. And the colors really pop and you realize like, this is the actual thing. Like not merely is it, uh, a painting that I love, but it's also one that has just, uh, that is just everywhere in, in American culture and society. And this is the actual one. Mm. Like this can't actually be replicated because this is the actual thing. And so in that sense, I felt a connection to 
Edward Hopper. I felt a connection to everybody that has ever looked at this thing and appreciated it. But then I also felt, this is going to sound really cheesy, I felt a connection to art in general and just how exciting that is. And so I feel like uh, if I, you know, if this isn't too lofty, that is one of the neat things about film, like the, by which I mean physical film, uh, and, and embracing, um, you know, uh, embracing like the way things used to be, or, or maybe the way things started and maybe we've moved away from it and you can debate whether or not that's a good thing, or maybe it's just perfect. Maybe it's neutral, but by embracing how things started and not being afraid of it, I feel like I feel more connected to everything film at that point. Yeah. And sometimes it's even literal. I mean, you'll get prints, especially there's a certain segment of prints called IB Technicolor prints that the colors are actually dyed into the film strip itself. And Mm -hmm. so the colors never fade. Um, The technology has since been lost for whatever reason. They apparently can't do it anymore. They can't figure out how they did it in the first place. Um, So every time you see Damascus steel, Absolutely. <laughs> um, so every time you see one of these prints, you're probably seeing it from the time in which it was made. Um, so, you know, when I saw a ton of Jerry Lewis movies in IB Technicolor prints and might be the prints that Jerry Lewis watched when they first showed them. And that's pretty cool. I, I just want to say there's got to be at least a few people listening. There might be. <laughs> who know stuff about swords who are like, yes, <laughs> that is just like Damascus steel. It reminds me, David, do you remember uh, back in school when, you know, we, were, we would be watching, um, you know, old, like, silent films like Nosferatu where, you know, they would, where yellow meant daytime and blue meant nighttime right. and that sort of thing. And I remember uh, seeing an old... I don't know. It wasn't like an advertisement. I don't remember, but something specific. It specified like that these were hand dipped, like dipped into the into the dye. And I remember just thinking, like, it's like first off, who gives a shit <laughs> if it's hand dipped? That was my initial reaction. But then part of me is like, damn right, hand dipped. Like it, just, it somehow seemed more, like the fact that this particular print you're looking at, yeah. uh, not necessarily the one we were looking at, but the concept of it, that somebody took the time to like. This was actually in somebody's hands. It wasn't just put through a processor or something like that. And so whoever's job that was, you know, that it, it, I'm sure it wasn't anybody who had any stake in the creative process <laughs> at all, but they had their, they quite literally had their fingerprints on it. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, they're probably wearing those white gloves. No, they, um, not, not back then. <laughs> not, yeah. Probably yeah. not in those days. Actually. Yeah. Um, um, I don't know. I don't know how much more you have. Uh, a few. Okay. I can, I can roll through them. Okay. Well, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, which is just a side thing to these repertory type screenings right. is the people who go to them all the time, which is I'm, okay, the yeah. kind of person that I am going to probably be when I'm older. I feel that very same. But I'm not so. talking about the people our age. I'm talking about no, people like 50s or above. Oh, yeah. Who this is their social life. They and always have too many bags with them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was a woman in front of us, at, uh, in front of my wife and I, the puppet master, who... Okay, so there was a couple in front of us, and the guy went up to get to the bath, go to the bathroom. And this woman comes in with her too many bags and too many jackets, yeah, and just like plops down in the chair. <laughs> and the woman's like, "Oh, I'm sorry, my my boyfriend's sitting there. He's coming back to the bathroom." She's like, and then, so she starts huffing and puffing. She's standing up. <laughs> she starts doing this weird thing where she's tying her sweatshirt to her jacket for some reason to like carry it easily in case there's a fire and she needs to go out the window. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, but I, th- I feel like she was just doing whatever she could to take more time, right. to more inconvenience this person. Cause she was pissed. She didn't get her seat. 
since it goes down a row where there's an open chair but not there's a guy in the end and he's talking to his friend and she's not going to say excuse me she just stands there <laughs> and waits for this guy's friend to say oh there's someone who wants to get in and he goes oh and he like sort of scoots back in his chair a little bit and goes very friendly he goes come on in and she goes huh come on in <laughs> and like scoots down the aisle to the open chair uh it was delightful oh yeah there's a guy who's at ucla literally every time i go and he'll try to talk to you if you're not careful and it won't make sense what he's saying but uh he seems to enjoy himself david do but, you remember when you and oh, i went to see the scarlet empress but i saw that guy a lot was yeah he was there a lot yeah uh, yeah there was a guy um long beard i believe right long scraggly beard like it probably like it looked like it had twigs in pretty it. scraggly um but he was a nice guy like i ended up riding the bus back with him from like i think the bullfighter and the lady or some some movie that i saw uh him and, and just sort of listening to a bunch of these 60 year people in their 60s who go to these things all the time and are all friends riding the bus back they're all really nice guys but this guy he a, he loved movies yep because he could not contain his reaction oh. anytime something would happen be like oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah yeah i was the that's the one I, that exact reaction was the yeah. one i'm remembering yeah. from the scarlet empress when marlene dietrich is uh like she finally has like uh gotten her strength you know and mm-hmm. she threatens it was a sam jaff i believe um it's been since that screen yeah <laughs> and uh, and uh so she like you know and it's marlene dietrich of course you know being tough as nails which is a lot of fun to watch yeah and that guy is like whoa ho, ho. <laughs> it's like it's not a fucking wrestling match man <laughs> like it's but you know what that's on us he, that guy's enjoying the movie uh, is uh, it on us i feel like as long as it's in the spirit of the film it's probably okay although i another film that showed at tcm fest the children's hour is just this amazing film that i absolutely love but which has very clearly drawn heroes and villains is and, it an adaptation of the lillian yes oh, okay um and whenever you know the ostensible villains got their comeuppance the audience was ecstatic <laughs> which <laughs> always bothers me a little bit because you know have some humility people but um <laughs> well I'm just, it's a fairly nuanced drama you probably shouldn't be cheering you know when a child is told to be quiet <laughs> it's uh, if but if you know what in the way if the entire audience is on board then like if it's a mob mentality i'm more i'm more okay because yeah, you it. just talked last week about something that i found really uh that i really related to the idea of going to see these silent comedies mm-hmm. and these audience modern day audiences who have been exposed to decades and upon decades of different of you know the of co- comedic progress because mm-hmm. comedy if there's one art form that is always changing it's comedy yeah and yet suddenly they're laughing just as hard as they would have been 90 years ago i mean laughter is in the spirit of the film i'm talking about like jeering and you know i don't know and i, I think that's in the spirit of the film too <laughs> but, a, but like it. a bunch of people stood up and said like yeah fuck you kid <laughs> stuff like that well actually during the funeral scene uh <laughs> One of the ostensible villains shows up who actually apologized for her actions to the heroines. And uh, once it cuts to her during the funeral, one behind me goes, it's like, way to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's like, but, you, do you remember, uh, you were, I know you know a Pat Oswalt story from his old stand-up about the searchers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, People can look that up. But that the children's out an example of a film that was still good enough that it could withstand what I thought was an intrusive audience. Um, 
I do want to mention real quick from the hand crank silence. They showed the only film in the entirety of TCM fest that was directed by a woman from 1913 called uh, suspense. Um, and she did this like three way split screen thing that uh, like vastly anticipates Brian De Palma stuff for which he was greatly acclaimed in the seventies, but she's doing this in 1913 and it's just mm-hmm. as effective and just as trippy and just as cool. And again, a three way split screen. Um, Speaking of like the quality of the colors in a print, they showed Patton in 70 millimeter, which I'd never seen before and which I loved much more than I expected to actually. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that you like Patton. <laughs> maybe some of it was seeing in 70 because, you know, like, every shot just becomes awesome. Yeah, uh, there, there is definitely a nice uh, epic uh, spectacle quality to it. And especially that opening scene with him against the flag, you know, you're getting, like I said, the whites from the project- projector, which are so bright that they're, mm-hmm. you know, the flicker really like, and it really makes that scene pop in a way. And yeah. the reds are, jumping out of you and uh george c scott seems like he's gonna jump out of you and yeah oh and he might (laughs) you don't want george c scott after you (laughs) if they'd let him (laughs) um the other big event in los angeles was the nora fest i won't go into everything i saw there but i do want to talk about noir fest what i say it sounded like you said Nora Fest, yeah, which, which is, is a, about Nora Ephron. Right? Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm losing my vocal capacity. Or Nora Dunn, sure. Or uh, Nora Dunn runs roles. Nora Charles, uh, sure. When she had her own series after <laughs> after Nick and Nora got divorced, divorce, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she got Asta. It was a lot sadder, but uh, <laughs> still pretty fun. Um, the show that you were there for, David, the night of, is it Argentine or Argentinian? Argentinian. We were all saying different things. I feel like the introduction, they were saying Argentine. Um, I think it's Argentinian. That's what I was going and that, That's what it said in the, like the, Oh, okay. The that makes calendar or whatever said Argentinian. Okay. So yeah, um, it was, depending on how you look at it, either uh, anywhere from two <laughs> to four Argentinian uh, films. Yeah, I guess it's four. Because the second one was a two and a half hour anthology that itself was two films that had well, okay so it was made the films were made with the idea of being screened as one big chunk right. because i think they're all based on short stories by the same author is that the idea yeah and they're all directed by the same guy okay but the third one ended up being it's like 65 minutes or something yeah. and, and so it's long enough to release by itself yeah and so this is the first time that the three films had actually been shown together and it's also the first time that any of the things we see saw had been shown in the u.s right um i think they showed them in san francisco which is oh. where Norfest really um is based um, okay but yeah this is these were that incredibly rare and you know they're obviously not on dvd and even in uh less legal capacities of obtaining rare films. Uh-huh. They're not available there either. I checked um, because I loved the first one we saw, um, which is called El Vampiro Negro. Yeah. I know we talked about it briefly, but I, I gather you liked it as well. Yeah, it was great. It's, um, it's M it's this, yeah. uh, it's an, I, I they said it was I'm, like inspired by it, but in some ways it's a very direct remake of, yeah, from but, it, but another way, like in ways they talked about, there are way more women in yeah. this one than in M. And also, um, the, the cop is more of a presence as I, it's been a while since I've seen him. You've probably seen him more recently than I yeah. have, but, um, the main, th- my memory of him is that the main thrust is that it's the other criminals going after this criminal. Yeah. I mean, the cops are doing like, that's, that's when the story really kicks in. Cause of course the cops are after him anyway. Um, but yeah, this, like what makes the story particularly interesting, I think yeah. is when the other criminals get involved. So that, and, that's a bigger part. So a, a vampire Negro doesn't have that, but what it, does have is the scene that we all think of from the end of M where he's being confronted instead of the criminal com- population. It's the homeless population yeah. of hmm. Buenos Aires, which is because it's the, 
the homeless blind guy through the whistling who like identifies him uh, in the first place. And the, so one thing leads to another and he's confronted in the sewers by a phalanx of homeless people. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> Good vocab there. <laughs> is he still, uh, does he still whistle in the heart of the mountain King? Uh, how does that uh, go? Are you just trying to make fun of me? No. Just do a do, do, do. Yeah, it was. No, it wasn't that, was it? I don't think it was that. <sighs> well, but it was another like. It was something that I very famous well thing. known. Yeah, but I don't think it was that. Oh no, it was that. It actually. was. Yeah. Now that okay. I'm thinking back on it, it was that. Okay. And we were trying to remember if that was from M too, and that's mm. interesting. That it was. And actually, the guy that cast was clearly like the closest Argentinian guy they could find that looked like Peter Lorre. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> he was really good in the movie, but it just, he just happened yeah. to look exactly like Peter Lorre. Yeah. But there is the, um, the, the cabaret singer who is not a role that's in them. Yeah. Um, who has a big part. And then also the lead detective's wife is a yeah, fairly, fairly large big part. role. Hmm. Uh, oh. the, so the, those are some of the differences. And I, I mean, I haven't seen him in a while, but I feel like this was more adventurous aesthetically. Um, the opening sequence is like this whole like dissolve and like, uh, weird lenses going on. Right, it, yeah, yeah. It's, everything that takes place at night is very strange, and I thought it really uh, accentuated the idea of this guy being a mild mannered guy during day and being this like monster at night. It kind of got at the idea that like everyone's a little transforms a little bit at night. I feel like everything's that, a little bit different. I feel like that comes through an M. Like, okay. When I think of the stuff that takes place during the day, it's pretty straightforward. But then when night comes along, like it's all shadows and jagged edges and stuff like okay, that. Okay, interesting. I, I really need to see him again. Um, I remember liking it, but not enough. <laughs> it's pretty marvelous. I love it. Um, so the last set of films I want to get into is the Ho Xiao Shen stuff that's been showing at UCLA, which is still ongoing. It goes through May and June. Um, David, you and I saw The Puppet Master, which I'm still in some ways processing. All of his films have gotten better for me the next day, and this one just keeps getting better. Yeah. Um, but you were pretty knocked out by it right away, and I certainly have come to that point myself. <laughs> yeah, well, you, I mean, you, you, were you skeptical at first? No, it's just, it is partially that I was very tired. Okay. Um, going into it, um, so, I, so it took me a bit to kind of process and kind of link it all together. Honestly, I, I think um, uh, I know he's. I need to see more of his stuff because this felt like to go back to what the guy was talking about, uh, who introduced the film. I forget his name, but comparing it to the fifth generation Chinese stuff of Chen Kaige and uh, Zhang Yimou and mm-hmm. the guy who made the Blue Kite, whose name I could point out, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to even try to say um, his name. Um, I feel like this felt more like that than like what I think of as tai- Taiwan, which basically boils down to Siming Ling um, is like the only major Taiwan director. I know I guess Ang Lee, but I guess he's yeah. come so far out of yeah. that that I don't it's really, hard to really think it back that. to that. Um, in that um, this was the, uh, the puppet master was uh, a more like, I'm trying to think of what the right word I was kept coming out at the time that I don't think is entirely right was populist, but it's, it's, it's more of that than I was expecting. It's more, yeah. uh, it, like it, not, not that it's going so far as to be Spielbergian, but it has, uh, there's certain grandism. Yeah. 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 Um, all his films do actually though. And I think they're funnier than his reputation usually allows for the, this. The puppet master has tons of laughs. In. I know. I wish I remembered some of the lines because he, the, the guy it's about narrates the film, um, which has led some people to call it a documentary. It's not a documentary at all. Um, but he does narrate the film and has some amazing stories and one liners. And I wish yeah. I could remember some of those lines, but yeah, I'm it is forgetting all frequently much funnier than I expected it to be. Yeah. Well, there's a whole, there's a scene that's just like a comic centerpiece where 
the guy is had shacked up with this prostitute that he's in love with. And she pretends oh, to yeah. go out of town <laughs> and has one of the other prostitutes knock on his, like the door of his room to try and like, to say like, I don't want you to sleep alone. I want to come in to see. And, <laughs> but it turns out she's like just down the hall listening to see if this guy is going to give into temptation or not. And then he doesn't. And then like all the prostitutes come in and they like have a party because it turns out he's loyal. It's like, Oh, you, you know, we approve of you now. You're loyal. It's a good thing. You didn't let her in. We had our brooms ready. <laughs> and then he has a whole story about his grandmother who had passed around his family because everywhere she goes, someone either got gravely ill or died. Yeah. And so eventually his father to whom the main character, the main subject had been paying most of his income, uh, was like, you can keep your income, just take your grandma off our hands. Right. And he's like, and she came and stay with me. And what do you think happened? We're all totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing is that guy. Uh, I mean, I guess that, that is, that's not the other thing. It's what you're saying is that that guy himself, there's a reason he's narrating the film. He's a great storyteller. Yeah, he's fantastic. And yeah, that like that, that structure of what do you think happened? She was fine. Yeah. I was fine. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. That guy has actually been in a few of uh, Ho's other movies, including, uh, two I saw dust in the wind and daughter of the Nile. And he is just as funny and compelling there. There's, I mean, talk about unusual humor in art films. There's actually, you won't appreciate this David, but there's a whole sequence in which he's bragging about his farts. Yeah. Um, oh boy. It's not for me. It's well, funny. it's for me. <laughs> um, but yeah. And actually you know who else is for is the guy who was sitting next to me for the second half of that Argentinian thing. I don't know if you noticed he was, I think I saw him like, come in <laughs> And, and like he had actually sat next yeah. to me at an earlier noir fest thing and was very reactive. So I kind of saw but it wasn't, like, he was I, like, he just I didn't care about like, I, I don't know. I try not, I try not to make too much noise. Yeah. And this guy was just like, just readjust himself. And I think he did fart at one point. Ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> but, then just, but he just be like, <clears throat> as he's like adjusting in his seat. I am very uncomfortable even just looking at you mimicking the guy. <laughs> But I do, um, I do crack my knuckles during movies, which is a bad, bad habit that I should stop that probably annoys people. But uh, once I do one, I got to do all oh, of them. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like uh, Lay's potato chips. Yeah. <laughs> they have the same crunch. Um, <laughs> but actually, speaking of the host stuff, this is a director that I've been meaning to get into for years, but most of his stuff is not available here yeah. on DVD, let alone like streaming options. Um, and actually, this gets to one of the things that I really like about making 35 millimeter shows a priority is you just start to see whatever's showing. I've been wanting to get into Ho Shaoshen for years, so it was great that they're showing it. But there's also tons of stuff that I see that I would never see otherwise that, um, you know, of the 60 or so movies I saw in the past two months, I chose to watch maybe three of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> the others were just, you know, they're there, and, you know, why not? And sometimes they're revitor, sometimes they're a little dull, but it is kind of interesting to have it. it your decision's kind of programmed for you. Um, and especially these films, like I said, they're not available in good, form, good quality to, to see them on film with like to me exceeding blu-ray quality is a real treat uh dust in the wind is probably my favorite of his so far um it's surprisingly emotional but very spare and austere and last night they showed a couple of his his two very first films which weren't made with any kind of like auteurist ambition they're just like factory made films that he happened to be directing hmm. but the the first was like very factory made and sometimes a little off-putting but it was still quite fun the second one was I thought really moving and I'm kind of uh, wagging my finger at other Ho enthusiasts who are dismissing these early films, which I think have a lot of emotion and feeling in them. And I'm really glad that UCLA made a point of showing them. Have you now you, um, you sent an email to a group of uh, us. Yeah. I don't know if that annoys people buds. or oh, not. I loved it. Okay. I think then you I'll definitely keep doing, keep doing it. it. 
Um, but one of the things you mentioned was the William Wellman um, thing at uh, UCLA. Have yeah. you been to that yet? No, unfortunately. Um, I think it only started. I think they've done like two double yeah, features. So it keeps far. overlapping with other stuff that I want right. to see. And now I'm going to be out of town for one of them. And it, it's kind of a drag. Actually, the last one I really wanted to go to this past Sunday, but they're showing hard to be a God at Cine Family. And I wasn't going to miss that. Um, uh, that's a started at 9 p.m. on a Sunday. I know it was tough. <laughs> so, Sunday nights are like that's it's uh, I, I'm generally a movie before TV guy. Yeah. But Sunday nights I stay in with my wife and we watch TV. That's like a sacred. Yeah. If ritual. I actually had cable, I do the same thing because all the shows are on Sunday. Right. So for yeah. me, it's more of a Monday thing. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but that's all, that's all I got. You know what I, I wanted to ask you? Did you ever see a documentary called Cinemania? Uh, no, but I've heard of it. It's fantastic. Um, and it's about it. Have you have you seen it? Mm. It it takes place. I mean, it's New York City in like two thousand two, I think, or three, and it just follows four people who just all they do is yeah. go to movies, like uh, either because they're one's retired or one's like on disability or one guy like inherited money from his uh, from when his grandmother died or something, and like these. So these people who don't work, they just try to see as many movies as possible. And there's the one guy who inherited money from his grandmother will only watch movies on 35 millimeter. He doesn't watch movies right. at home at all. He just goes to multiple screenings a day. Yeah. In New York, you can totally do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, I did want to, uh, put a question out to the table just as a, maybe a fun, uh, recommendation thing, even though, uh, you just rattle off a lot of really, uh, good, uh, recommendations. It sounds like, although not a lot of them are available. Some are, I, I haven't really looked into it. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I think the recommendation is find see, your yeah. local repertory yeah. cinema. Yeah, actually, yeah. that is the recommendation. <laughs> if you have one, I, I do find myself like happy that uh, like if we lived in Chicago, it, it's no problem. But like if I still lived in Denver or Springfield, no, but, I feel like yeah, I don't know about Springfield. Um, well, we saw Sunset Boulevard on, and that would have been thirty-five millimeter, right? Because this yeah, was, I guess so. That, was that theater the, doesn't exist. But anymore. also, I mean, how long ago was that? That was two thousand. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they were still shipping film prints out. Now yeah. studios are very much holding on, and private archives very much hold on to what they have. Yeah, um, which is one of the benefits of living in Los Angeles is you're close to all the studios, so they're yeah. fine shipping yeah. them across town. Yeah, but even in St. Louis, we had um, the uh, Webster University, which would show both like all kinds of old. Old, old old stuff like i saw um antonioni's um the gospel according to saint matthew there mm-hmm. but then they would also show like new stuff that wasn't getting any distribution like my first exposure to uh, the films of olivier Assayas was in the late 90s in st louis at webster university so even if it's not a movie theater check out universities because yeah, universities I, yeah. are great no. See, I, yeah i also saw um a film that is still never, I don't think has ever been widely released, a 1953 independent film called The Salt of the Earth. Not the new, right. not the new movie, <laughs> The Salt of the Earth, but Salt of the Earth, which is about um, striking uh, Mexican miners. Oh, wow. Um, and is And then becomes more specifically about um, the their wives, because, like, there's the... They, they they pass some sort of rule against the miners striking, and so the wives like take up their. So it's like a 1953 movie yeah, okay. about Mexican women on strike. It's, it's something you would never see <laughs> yeah. uh, from a studio. And I saw that at Northwestern University when I lived in in Chicago. Um, so yeah, check out universities. I guess is what I'm saying. So what I was going oh, to ask, I, is, I totally <laughs> stepped on your recommendation. That's perfectly fine. I was going to ask each of you, uh, like, what in your 
let's say adult life um, was like your your favorite or whatever you want to call it uh, experience seeing like a, a film like an older film in the theater whether it be on on 35 or or, or 70 or otherwise um, like it, maybe it's a film you'd seen before maybe it wasn't uh, but and if it was a film you saw before maybe it uh, may, may cause you to see it a different way or, or whatever can you narrow um, it down it, very hard to choose I but didn't entirely follow the question <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty there are a lot of clauses in there well i was trying i didn't want to i didn't want to be too like i want I, I i guess i wound up being more specific when i was trying to actually be more broad okay which is your your best experience or rather i guess your favorite experience seeing uh, an older film in the theater whether it be okay. on film or otherwise okay the only one that leaps to mind I mean, it's very hard for me to think of everything, but the one that leaps to mind for sure is either Lonesome, which played at TCM Fest a couple years ago, and is now available on Criterion uh, on a great Blu-ray, but it was a film that I knew nothing about and instantly became like one of my absolute favorites. It's an incredibly moving film by this guy who barely made anything, um, but made this one film that somehow got made. The producer at the studio was a huge fan of this other film that sadly lost of his now, and he basically gave him carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And so he had decided to adapt a scenario that was designed to be a short and expanded into a 60 minute film. That's like just unreal. Incredible. Um, the other one would be, I talked about this on the podcast a couple of months ago, but wild strawberries, mm-hmm. which I'd seen many times before and seeing that on film at the arrow, which is a huge screen, um, was as transformative as I can imagine. Mm. Uh, I'm having a hard time narrowing it down. A lot of them are going to be like a lot of the ones that come to mind are from when I lived in Chicago, when we lived in Chicago, because yeah. I was like a college student and sort of like still new to film in general outside of what had been available to me as a mm-hmm. suburbanite, um, much less these kind of screenings. So that Boonwell series that I mentioned earlier was one of the first of those kinds. I also, there was that theater that I don't even know what it was called. It was in the back of a LaSalle bank on Irving park that would just show, Oh yeah. Uh, and would, and would show old movies. And I saw, I mentioned the bullfighter, bullfighter and the lady, which is a Bud Bedecker, um, Western with Robert Stack. Um, and then I saw, that's where I saw Nanak of the North. Um, mm, that's right. Which is great. Uh, and then out here, a f- more recent one has been a few years, but doesn't it seem, it seems like every once in a while there's these movies that have been around, but then they get, for some reason, if there's a new print or there's going to be a Blu-ray release or for some reason, suddenly they get sort of, it's uh, a new thing. Uh, yeah. And, um, there was one from a few years ago that wasn't the main one, but it got a lot of attention, uh, all of a sudden, uh, which was, um, uh, Hal Ashby's the landlord. Oh yeah. I've never seen that. And I saw that at the arrow, um, with, uh, um, Bo Bridges Q and a afterwards. Oh, cool. Uh, and then they screened the fabulous Baker boys, which I'm glad I stayed for. Cause that's also a fantastic film. Um, so that was a big one too. Uh, for me, I feel bad saying, uh, when we saw Lawrence of Arabia at the music box, but in 70, yeah, in 70, it was, of course it was beautiful, but also just even the experience though, in general was, even though fun. they messed up, uh, at one point, do you remember uh, that? I remember, I don't remember the specifics now. When they, when they switch from one reel to the next, I guess they have them, they didn't have them all spliced together. They're literally switching, you know, the two projectors from one. And I guess when it went from the first reel to the second, they didn't have the, um, whatever the like anamorphic thing for scope. So suddenly it went like all blurry and huge (laughs) and they had to stop the film. 
Um, but yeah, given that it's like a four hour, four hour movie, something that happened 20 minutes in, we all forgot, yeah, we all yeah. forgot about it by the intermission. <laughs> yeah. But um, I mean, it's not as bad as I've had screenings where they mix up the reels, which gets very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a, on the, um, John Frankenheimer talks about on the Manchurian candidate commentary, DVD commentary. Oh yeah. I was thinking about that story earlier. <laughs> yeah. Being like, it's like another, it was like in Greece or something, yeah. uh, going to a screening and, the reels being out of order and he went up to talk to no, the it was that the reel was missing. It just skipped oh, reel over reel four, okay. I think it was. Uh, yeah. And he goes up to talk to the projectionist and the projectionist is like, Oh yeah, I did that. I think it plays better this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fun stories like that. Um, but before I get to those, cause I will tell them cause they're fun. Um, <laughs> probably that, or I did see, uh, I saw jaws a few years ago and it was beautiful. And it was, uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen it on a big screen and it was in, I believe 35. Um, and then I also saw night of the hunter, uh, oh, at yeah. the Egyptian that's playing with rear window. Next Is it really? Oh yeah. boy. I may, yeah, I <laughs> may make that a priority, but, um, but yeah, there's a couple of fun stories. One is, uh, cause I've been watching, uh, like alien commentary, uh, and stuff and making of stuff. And, Ridley Scott had said that people were, that he was talking to a theater owner uh, about the first alien. And one of the guys said, yeah, it's like during that, uh, that thing where that scene where the thing comes out of the guy's chest, like people were throwing up, but we, we, we took care of that. And he's like, well, how'd you take care of it? He's like, Oh, we just cut out that scene. And, uh, now we don't have to worry about it. (laughs) So, uh, It's like, that's, there's your theater owner. But, uh, but then also one of my favorite, uh, bits of criticism was, okay, so there is a movie that would become, that would be adapted into the film jungle to jungle. There is a French film called, uh, little Indian, big city or big city, little Indian. It's about, it's basically jungle to jungle, but it takes place in Paris anyway. Uh, and it was apparently terrible. Um, I believe it was Siskel and Ebert's. I think it was their least favorite film of that year, both of them separately. I'm glad they got a do over and made jungle to jungle. (laughs) Yes. Which I think also (laughs) landed on their least favorite (laughs) list the following year. But, uh, and I think it was, I think I read it in, in Ebert's review, but I think he was quoting Siskel when he said it, that the, uh, the screening they went to, uh, a reel went missing for a little while. And then they got it and then they got everything sorted out. Um, and, uh, and Gene Siskel said that missing reel could have been, they could have replaced that missing reel with the 40 minutes cut out of the Magn- the Magnus and Ambersons. And this film still would have sucked. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I enjoy the idea of that. But, uh, um, anyway, I'm sorry. What? That, that reminds me of a story. I'm trying to think of the director. Okay, the director's name is Eric Valley. I don't really know his, um, he's a French director, made a movie in 1999 called Himalaya. Mm. And I went to, um, the, uh, Plaza front neck movie, theater, which is a landmark, uh, movie theater in St. Louis. And I was like, I said one for Himalaya, please. And they said, just so you know, they made a mistake. There are no subtitles in the first reel. <laughs> and I was like, that sounds interesting. <laughs> so I watched the movie that's like in Tibetan yeah. and just sort of having to parse what was going on for the first 20 minutes. And then it all came into place. Uh, but it's a good film and I was able to figure out what was going on. When the subtitles kicked in, did you think, did you immediately go, Oh boy, I was way off. <laughs> uh, it's like, I thought these guys were in love. It turns out they want to kill each other. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a superhero film. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. I also, there's nothing to do with film, but I saw the film Songcatcher. Remember that movie? 
uh, about no. the woman who goes into the Appalachians to sort of, she's like a musicologist to like record these like folk songs that have been passed down for generation. Uh, generation. Anyway. Um, I saw it in the, th- in the summer in a the theater and the air conditioner was broken in St. Louis where it's hot, where it's hot, hot and humid. Uh, and it was like, this is like, this is like uh, William Castle's dream. Like uh, sitting here, <laughs> that's the it takes place in like the Appalachians, and here I am sweating my balls off. Now the, uh, the first new time, misery scope. <laughs> yeah. The first time I saw The Big Sleep was in a theater where there was no air conditioning in the middle of August, um, and I was sitting in the balcony, which was an even stupider move. Um, <laughs> and so the reason that the plot made no sense, I just figured, it was because it was so damn hot, and my brain wasn't working. <laughs> Little did I know, the plot yeah. literally makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, well, that was a good question, Tyler. It led to some cool yeah. stuff. <laughs> I went to see The Blind Side uh, years ago, and uh, and I guess it was uh, I guess it was on film because there was a specific point when, like, I guess they had to, like change the reels or whatever, and suddenly it was upside down and backwards, <laughs> and uh, and y- the dialogue was backwards and stuff, and it was just like an ab- an absolute like nightmare <laughs> escape, uh, like. But the film, of course, became way more interesting, and yeah. then they then they came in and said like hey we can't fix this so uh you can either get your money back or uh like a rain check to see the blind side it's like i'll just take the money because <laughs> i really this the film only started getting interesting when that happened all right this is fun right yeah Everybody? thanks for indulging me sure yeah, no this is great um thank you uh you we can find us about i'm anticipating negative comments that's all uh, oh, um, I'm anticipating telling some people to go fuck themselves. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you can find us and leave negative comments at battleshippretension.com. You can also be told to go fuck yourself at battleshippretension.com. <laughs> and uh, at the king of TV.com. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you can email us at David at Battleship Retention or Tyler at Battleship Retention. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at Davey Pretension. You can follow Tyler at Tyler Pretension. Uh, Tyler has another podcast. It's called More Than One Lesson. It's at morethanonelesson.com. Where, what's, what's going on over there this week? Uh, let's see. Um, right now there is a, a mini sode in which we talk about, uh, Milos Forman's, uh, Amadeus and also just the movie year 1984, which as it turns out was a pretty great movie year. If you yeah. look back, um, and then coming up, uh, I will be doing an episode about Nightcrawler, uh, comparing it to there will be blood. All right. So. Um, my other podcast is about TV. It's called Hey, Watch This. Uh, this week, Paul is off, so I'm being joined by a friend of this show, Susan Burke. Uh, she wanted to talk about Mad Men, so we're going to be talking about Mad Men. And I wanted to talk about the season three premiere of Inside Amy Schumer. So that's that's what's on the bill for Hey, Watch This this week. Um, Scott, where can people find you when you work on the internet? Uh, on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. That's R-A-I-L of Tomorrow. Um, at BattleshipRetention.com and at CriterionCast.com, where I also But host. mostly at BattleshipRetention.com. I do have an article in the queue, actually, that I would have posted today if I could find an image for these Ho movies that nobody has released. <laughs> um, so I'm going to have to keep looking. That's, um, why, that's why I avoid the obscure ones, because I can't <laughs> find a, a graphic to go with them. It is annoying. Can you, I think like, everything's out there. Can you literally take the UCLA booklet and like scan it? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I don't know when I'm going to go there next, though. No. <laughs> um, and then uh, at Criterion Cast, I host uh, their mainline episodes. We recently talked about Don't Look Now, and we have uh, the Three Penny Opera coming up. All right. Um, that's it, right? Yes. Anything else? I don't, uh, I don't think so. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.